Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hello, everyone. I hope you're all doing well. <laughs> it's really awesome to be here, and it's awesome to meet everyone in person. Um, I feel so blessed and lucky and honored to be here tonight and to share with you my experience, strength, and hope. Yes, and I, I just want to say um, thank you for everyone who made this um, rally possible and all the work that you guys have put in on the background. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it looks absolutely amazing and it's so it's beautiful. And thank you for the food. And then um, I just want to start by saying my name is Nina and I'm, I'm an alcoholic. Um, thank you. I'm 230 days sober. Thank you. <laughs> um, friends in recovery really has played a big role in my recovery. Me as well, like Dante, uh, also started off being a Zoom baby, and that's kind of where my um, journey started with Alcoholics Anonymous and where I really got introduced and also educated with Alcoholics Anonymous. For years, alcohol ruled my life. It destroyed relationships, drained my finances, and shattered my self-esteem. I didn't know how to live without it. And I was terrified of facing life on life's terms. But with the help of AA, I found a new way of living. I found hope where there was once despair. I found peace where there was once chaos. But most importantly, I found a fellowship of people who understood the struggle, the pain, and the joy of recovery. Tonight, I want to share with you my experience, strength, and hope. I want to tell you that you are not alone, that there is a solution, and that life can get better, if you are willing to take the first step. Thank you for allowing me to be here and to share my story, and I also want to apologize if I'm all over the place, (laughs) because I am a bit nervous. Yes, so um, I grew up in a small town uh, in Rustenburg with a single mother, a twin sister, and grandparents. Um, growing up without a father definitely had um, took its toll on me. Um, I struggled a bit with feeling neglected and rejected as a child. And then in my teen years, I was a bit of a I was a very confused teenager. I really battled with suicidal thoughts and self-harming in high school and eventually I started with my curious journey of alcohol and um, I drank my first drink when I was 16 and it basically never stopped from there. From then on forward... I drank all the time. Um, it was like alcohol uh, ruled my life, and all of my decisions and everything I did from then um, was decided 
by alcohol. Um, in the beginning, the drinking was fun, and then um, the drinking became fun with problems, and then the drinking was just problems. Um, I kept on trying to drink normally and to have a good time, but I started getting a lot of blackouts and really made a lot of problems for myself and other people. Um, in the end, I feel that in the end, uh, I did sell everything and I spent about seven months going from one place to the next, sleeping on friends' couches, um, driving around with my luggage in my car, and it really was absolute chaos. Every day I woke up and I really, I promised myself, if I could just get it right for one day, I would be very happy. Eventually, in a drunken state, I decided that uh, maybe it would be a good idea to go to rehab while I was speaking to a friend over the phone. And I really thought that being sober for 30 days would be amazing. 30 days, it seemed like a dream, like a fantasy. And, um, sorry. I really thought it would be the most amazing thing to be sober for 30 days. And I knew I could do it if I was in rehab. I went to rehab and I immediately, the next day, regretted my decision. <laughs> I was like, I'm over-exaggerating, I don't need rehab. But luckily they convinced me to stay. And I was introduced to um, Alcoholics Anonymous. We followed a, the Alcoholics Anonymous program in rehab. My good friend Joe Beth in rehab introduced me to Zoom. And, um, but I also remembered in the beginning that I thought that, uh, you know, I, I can't believe all the work I must do in recovery, do meetings and read a book. I really thought like, well, that really, really is a lot. And, um, people that were sober for 30 days, 60 days or 90 days, I just couldn't believe that people were sober for that long. I really, I thought that they were like lying. <laughs> And um, in the preambles, when they talk about, uh, do not be discouraged. No man, no man amongst us have been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. I thought that that meant you can drink some sometimes in between. <laughs> but no, it wasn't. Uh, I realized that, no, people are actually very serious about the program, and you, it's possible to be sober for that long. And then after reaching 30 days, 30 days became 60 days, 60 days became 19 days. And like Harold always says in the meeting, um, coming to AA is the best decision that you can ever make. Uh, yes, definitely. I agree with that. It is the best decision I ever made. And um, I think if I didn't get sober... Um, I don't know if I would still be here. Uh, it saved my life. It saved 
um, so many relationships in my life. I'm so blessed um, to have such a wonderful relationship with my family now. I can visit them. I go and see them all the time. And I can be proud. And, um, yes, it's absolutely amazing. I would have to say that the first year of recovering being sober was very difficult. Um, adjusting to a new way of living and I found it, I feel that if you, um, stop drinking, you kind of realize like why you are drinking. Uh, yes, I really had a lot to, a lot of pain and trauma. <laughs> I don't know why I want to cry the whole time. Eventually, um, I wasn't doing step work too much, just a little bit, just a little bit that was required of me in rehab. Um, I didn't put my all into it. And um, eventually I relapsed, not for long. And But I did know that I immediately knew the right place to go to was um, Friends in Recovery. I went on to Zoom straight away and... Um, this time was different. This time I took my step work a lot serious, more seriously and um, I got a sponsor and um, I really threw myself into step work and it really has helped me to um, heal from trauma, work on my resentments and um, I, I'm not a dry drunk anymore like I was um, the first year of my recovery. Um, the second time I I feel a lot more alive and I I mean I love my life at the moment. I feel so blessed and it's been it's really awesome. I have the best life now that I could never imagine and it's all through um AA and taking one good step at a time. Eventually, um, it, it gets better. And I have, like, cute cats now. <laughs> and I'm here in Durban uh, meeting my friends that have supported me in my recovery. And I've always been able to reach out to any of you. We chat on WhatsApp. I remember the time Lucas helped me with petrol money to get to work. <laughs> So it's been amazing, and um, it really, I say thank you to Friends in Recovery for being so awesome and supportive. Um, you guys rock, and I've, I'm just yeah, in awe to see you all face to face, and this is an absolute honor, and I'm just sorry for being so nervous. It's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I think that's all I want to say. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Karis. I'm an alcoholic. I'm from um, uh, Belleville, Illinois, um, in the Midwest, kind of smack dab in the middle, landlocked. Um, I'm so grateful to be here, and I'm so um, just really humbled. This is kind of scary up here. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for asking me, and thank you all so much for putting all of this together. It's just really amazing, um, and I feel so privileged to be here. And I also wanted to thank the guys that first started. I know Provin and Harold and Mike and um, Gordon, and I think there's I'm missing someone, but... 
Jay, for t for taking that prompting um, from the very beginning and, and going ahead of with, with Friends in Recovery, um, because it changed my life. It changed my life. I am also a Zoom baby. I've been sober since August of 2020. Um, I came on to um, Friends in Recovery when I... I'm the only alcoholic in my family that I know of. Um, I'm not sure how I got to be so lucky, but um, I'm it. And um, I, I got sober the first time when I was 17 years old. I, um, I really believe I was born an alcoholic. I, I, I had traits of an alcoholic from a young child. You know, I was... I learned very young how to manipulate, how to lie, how to get what I wanted, um, get what I needed um, at any cost. Um, and I was always very sweet doing it. But I always tended towards depression. I always tended towards needing a lot of attention. But then if somebody would pay attention, I wouldn't, wouldn't want the attention. Like, an, what's the phrase, an egomaniac with an inferiority complex? And so when I took my first drink... You know, if if I wasn't born an alcoholic, an alcoholic was born that day. Um, I don't remember ever taking a, a social drink. It was always to um, I always drank to get to get drunk. That was from the very beginning, and I did it the first time with some. I don't know. I think I don't guys. Do you guys have Boone Hill wine here? Boone. I don't know. It was called Tickle Pink. <laughs> so, um, but I quickly learned that um, that didn't uh, get me to where I wanted to be quickly enough and moved on to bigger and better things. It was a lot of fun at first, um, a lot of fun. I was, listen, I love a party anyway, but um, when I'm a little bit tipsy, I'm so much fun. But then when I just get a little more than that, I'm not so much fun anymore. <laughs> I'm either crying or planning my suicide or planning your homicide or um, planning, you know, planning something or other that's illegal or something. And so um, it, I didn't drink for very long. Um, and I, for a long time, uh, thought maybe AA wasn't for me because I, I didn't have a long drinking career. Um, it just got very bad very fast. And and now I know that um, it doesn't matter. Uh, it didn't matter how much I drank, how long I drank. Um, what mattered are the two things. When I really wanted to stop, could I do it? And um, when I um, have one drink, I can't guarantee what's going to happen. Um, I can't, well, I can pretty much guarantee I'm not just having one, put it that way. But I don't know when I'm going to stop. <laughs> and so... Um, I I thought maybe I needed a counselor. I'm skipping over so much stuff, but I thought maybe I needed a counselor. And I went to um, the Yellow Pages in, in the United States. We have a phone book, and the Yellow Pages is like business. We used to. It doesn't exist anymore. But um, And I thought, counselor, 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 counselor. Just picked one and called. And um, it turned out that that counselor was a counselor for a um, treatment center um, that had a private practice. And um, I went to see him. And he, I say this all the time, you're probably sick of hearing it, but he asked me once, do you think you have trouble drinking? I'm like, I don't have trouble drinking. What are you talking about? I'm just depressed. He said, well, how about this? If you had, if you, if you bought a six pack of beer, how long would it stay in the refrigerator? And he pretty much lost me at six pack of beer because why would you only buy a six pack of beer? That's just is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. So, um, it went on and, and I, and that, um, I saw him for a while and, um, 
I wasn't getting better. I wasn't feeling better. I wasn't feeling how I thought I should feel. And um, planned my suicide and went to his office and told him, "Thank you very much, but um, when I leave here, this will be the last time, and you won't need to you won't need to see me again." And um, now I feel horrible about saying that. Um, I can't imagine the things he was scrambling in his brains to to kind of take care of, but. He put me, he called my parents, put me in his car, and took me to rehab. And I stayed there for, I don't know, it was 30 days or something. That's a long time ago. Honestly, I don't remember a lot about rehab. I remember that I learned how to blow smoke rings, and I remember I learned how to, to French inhale my cigarette. But I did go to AA when I got out and um, got a sponsor uh, who was who was 18, a whole year older than me, and um, that didn't go so well. Um, we mostly, um, honestly, I mostly used the program and it was a, a kind of a club setting, um, because my parents didn't mind if I went to AA. And so I would go to AA, I would go to the meeting, then I'd take off with my boyfriend and, you know, be gone half the night. And so, but I did manage to get, I don't remember working step, but I did manage to get, um, let go and let God. I did manage to get that. And I, and that has stayed with me for a long time. I went to a small Christian college and, and I proceeded to stay sober for, um, 30 years. And, um, not, um, I'm not saying, I'm not saying do this, but, um, I didn't, I didn't go to AA. I, the only thing that I can, um, attribute that to is that I just really had a vibrant, kind of living faith in God. And, um, I surrounded myself with like-minded people. And so I, um, I always had that support and, and that focus. I got married. I married an alcoholic that I didn't know was an alcoholic when we met. I'm not sure how that happened exactly, but we got married. We adopted four children, um, who were, uh, like from foster care. They were all, uh, taken away from their birth parents for drugs. And, um, we started our family. I had an idea. I should say, don't, I don't want to give you the idea that, um, I was, I was displaying any sort of emotional sobriety during these, during this time. I was still the same person. I was still manipulative, lying, cheating, um, um, selfish, self-centered, doing anything I could to get exactly what I wanted. I kind of, now looking back, kind of beat my husband over the head to adopt children. Um, he was 25 years older than me, so he was 55 when we adopted our first child. And, um, and then we proceeded to adopt three more. After that, he was 60 when we adopted our last child, and I manipulated my way into that. I had this idea that my family should look a certain way. I had this idea that my family should portray a certain sort of picture. And let me tell you, my family did not portray that at all. You know, um, these kids of mine had issues. They had, they had some big issues and I wasn't, um, really prepared for that. And so, um, I can remember my history and faith is Christianity. And so I can remember reading through the Bible and, and looking at all of like, what, what am I doing? What am I praying wrong? Why is my family not how I need it to be? This is not right. God, I've done everything for you. My whole, my dad was a preacher. Did I miss, did I mention that? I've done this. I've done my whole life what I think you want me to do. I've raised my children to know you. I've, I've, been in service to you. And, um, how come my children aren't, aren't 
being the way I want them to be. And um, it was kind of at that point that I got really angry with God, but I still could talk the talk pretty well. Um, you grew up a preacher's kid, you know how to schmooze a little bit, you know? And, um, so I, I could still talk the talk, but I, um, was growing further and further away and getting more angry and more angry and sicker and sicker and sicker. I was just a really dry, yucky, stark, gray, getting sober person. There came a time when, um, I just gave up on God completely. I was mad at him. I, I wanted to have a baby and, um, and I, I saw all of these young mothers who I thought were completely unfit, of course, um, having children, and I couldn't have a baby. What the hell is going on here, you know? And at that point, I just thought, I'm done with you. I'm not doing this anymore. And so I, I just took my life back on my own terms. Um, I'll fast forward to um, just in 2020. Um, I'm a nurse. I'm an oncology nurse. And COVID hit. It was all very scary. And um, we didn't know exactly, you know, what caused it and all of that stuff. And so I moved out of my home. And, and uh, we put everybody in the other house. All the kids were afraid I was going to give it to my husband. who was a lot older than me. And um, I felt prey to the, I felt prey to the thought that, um, Almost every alcoholic that's relapsed, I've heard says, I can, you know what, I bet I can have normal, I bet I can just have one now. I bet I can drink normally now. And I did. It's the first time I ever bought liquor uh, legally in my life, you know. And so um, I went ahead and, and started drinking. And my friends, let me tell you what they say about it getting worse. Um, when you go back out, it wasn't a week before. Um, it was... It, it wasn't like I, it wasn't like I picked up where I left off. It's, it was like I never quit. Um, and you may say, how come, how can that be? Um, because the disease of alcoholism is in my mind. It's in my brain. And that was running rampant. It never, I may have been physically sober, but, um, the disease was running rampant in my life and was, and was definitely, um, in charge. So, um, I, except for this time, I'm 50 years old and I have a family and a husband and a career and I have a lot more to lose this time around. I'm very grateful that I didn't, um, hurt anyone, um, playing with people's chemotherapy and such. I'm, I'm grateful that I never killed anyone, honestly. And, um, I'm grateful that I didn't lose my license my nursing license or um, anything else, but the wave of destruction that I caused through my family, um, I'm still definitely paying the price for. I have a daughter that's estranged, will not speak to me, um, wrote me um, a letter just, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and I have never received anything with such venom in my life. And I had to look at that and realize that I caused, I caused that. I caused that. And part of my recovery is taking responsibility for my actions and what I did. And so I pray for her, and I pray that her heart will be softened and someday we'll reconcile. But that's all I can do. She's made it very clear she wants nothing to do with me. And um, I am now divorced. Um, my um, husband, who had gotten sober at the time, didn't appreciate the way that I acted when I was drinking. Um, I acted anything but a lady. And there were consequences for that. And so, um, and I lost the trust of a lot of people and a lot of friends. 
and of, of my children. And so I tumbled into Friends in Recovery very broken and very embarrassed and very um, angry with myself and um, just defeated. I was just defeated. And um, <laughs> Gordon says, how's it? And I was... Um, I felt welcome immediately, and I started working the steps, got a sponsor, made friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, like friends I've never met before. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is fabulous, so don't get me wrong. I, listen, I'm a fellowship person, but um, I, and I said last night, too, that the, the fellowship is great, but it didn't keep me sober. It's not what kept me sober. What keeps me sober are working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, done in order with, with a sponsor, showed me how to live a new life, and they changed my life. They healed relationships. They enabled me to forgive myself and to forgive others. They... Um, enabled me to take responsibility for um, for horrible things that I did um, and to make amends for those things of, of people that I thought I could never make amends to because I was so embarrassed about things that I did. The steps of Alcoholics Anonymous have brought me to a, a deeper understanding of a higher power, and one of, one of the biggest gifts of AA is the ability to choose God of your understanding. And I had a, a faith in a God. I don't remember this ever being told to me, but I always just felt like he was just watching me. I'm watching you. And he was about ready to, you know, whatever, bop me on the head or send a lightning bolt down or something, you know. I missed the concept of grace completely. And today, um, the God of my understanding is one of mercy and grace. Mercy because I... I don't get what I do deserve, and grace because um, I do get what I absolutely don't deserve. And um, that came from, from Alcoholics Anonymous and the teachings that had it. Do I do it perfectly? No. I was telling somebody today, I'm a bad meditator. The, can, the committee in my head, man, it, it never is quiet. And so it just always is. But um, I was able to meditate this morning for the first time in a long time, and it was wonderful. I want to just touch on quickly um, service um, because my, my recovery was increased, I don't know, tenfold. The satisfaction of it was increased tenfold by um, sponsoring women. And um, my first little sponsee, my first little duckling, she, um, she celebrated one year a couple of weeks ago. And I was so thrilled for her. I just, it was like I, I don't know, I was just so thrilled. And another sponsor, sponsee that I had, we're going through a big book, we're on her fourth step. When I get home from this trip, I'll, we'll go do her fifth step. She, the other day, made a decision and I really, I really didn't want her to do it, but I didn't, I didn't give her advice. You know, that's not what she wanted from me. She just, I was listening and, and then she called me back in two days and said, you know, I think it's probably not the best decision for me to do that. I just thought, and I almost cried. I was so proud of her. <laughs> you know, I was so proud of her. The joy that comes from seeing someone else get sober, it's just almost, I haven't experienced anything like that. And then I want to talk to you about the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, most of you know that I was here in February. My trip didn't quite go as planned because <laughs> I got off the airplane in Johannesburg and thought I was having a heart attack before I even left the airport and um, ended up in the hospital in Johannesburg, the ICU, for several days and then um, on the ward. 
And I tell you that because it's been several months, and I'm sorry, I still can't talk about it without crying, but um, never in my life have I had people show up for me the way the Fellowship of AA did. And never in my life have I felt so taken care of and valued. People put their lives on hold for me. People, I should tell you, that I'd never met in person. People put their lives on hold for me. They made themselves sick staying in the hospital with me, trying to work out insurance and this and that and everything else. I know Nelson spent a day at the American Embassy running around, and I know that um, people were praying for me, and I know that, well, I just, I know that, um, that that saved my life. And I really do um, value the fellowship of AA. I saw the best of us. I saw the best of us. I experienced the best of us. Um, nobody shows up like alcoholics show up in a crisis. It changed my life. Is the only way I can say it. It changed my life. AA brought me back to a God of my understanding. And the God of my understanding, I believe, brought me to friends in recovery. And then I meet all of these amazing, amazing people that are my family. And then they saved my life. And I can't be more grateful for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous because um, you showed up. You showed up when I, when I thought I was going to die by myself. <laughs> and you showed up. And I didn't die. So that's a plus, too. But um, <laughs> I'm so grateful for all of you. And I'm so grateful for your support. Stop laughing at me. <laughs> I also want to thank, um, I also just want to say a special shout out to Dan on Zoom that um, thank you so much for being part of my sobriety. Thank you so much for being part of my life. Um, you make my life infinitely sweeter, and I miss you. Thanks so much for letting me share. Hi, everyone. Hi, Gwen. My name is, my name is Gwyneth, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. Hi, Gwyneth. I, I come from George on the garden route. You're cold and wet. Um, and I cannot even begin to tell you how fabulous this is to be here and to meet the Zoom people. First of all, to meet the Zoom people and have hugs from people that I've never had hugs from before and never seen in person before. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And those of you who haven't been on Friends in Recovery and are not hugging us all, you have no idea what you're missing. <laughs> And I'd like to say to everybody on Zoom, hi there. You know, yesterday we celebrated Freedom Day. Freedom Day that we celebrated was one day out of 365. But I have 365 days of freedom. I'm free from alcohol. It doesn't rule my life anymore. And it ruled my life for a very, very long time. How was I going to get it? When could I first have my first drink? You all know the story. You've been there. Some of you worse than me, some of you less than me. But it happened, and today I can say I am free from alcohol. I'm free from, the, free from the desire to drink. I have no cravings. Life goes on, and life can be hectic, and life can be tough. 
but I have learned from other people, from other people's mistakes that I listened to at the meetings, that nothing can make anything better by drinking. And I need to remember that always. When I first went to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a little alcoholic. I said I was a little alcoholic. And I was told that there's no such thing as a little alcoholic. It's like being, it is like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're either on a train going to Johannesburg or you're not on a train going to Johannesburg. So in other words, you're either an alcoholic or you're not an alcoholic. So I couldn't forget over the little alcoholic. And then the lady alcoholic part um, that went out of the window also very, very quickly uh, when I realized I had not been a lady when I was drinking at all. And I hope that I can call myself a lady today. I try to the best of my ability to act in ladylike ways. And <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about my background. Yeah, I go to quite a lot of meetings, and recently I, I, I listen to people's stories and. They have this trauma in their lives. Growing up, they have, oh, all sorts of trauma and drama. And I thought, oh. I mean, I was so lucky I didn't have trauma in my life. But recently, this is the last six months or so, I've realized, also from talking to my brother, that I did have a lot of trauma in my life. I don't understand why I never recognized it as trauma until now. Um, I didn't realize that, that some of the faults that I can't get rid of are possibly because of that trauma. But we came to South Africa when I was seven years old. And, I, and we went to Cape Town, and I think that must be very traumatic for a young girl of seven to be taken from one country to another. But my mother and father did not understand the Cape English my mother especially, who spoke the Queen's English, and she was very blah, and when people said, can I take your daughter to Bioscope? She had no idea what they were talking about. None at all. And then they eventually got around to say, ah, films, films. And my mother was like, what? What is it? You're like, what is there? <laughs> what, what are they saying? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea, Mom. No idea. But I think we're going to go and watch something on a screen. And that she understood, and the answer was no. Um, through all that, the answer was no. My, 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 my father, I didn't get smacked or beaten or whatever you want to call it very often, but when I did, it was like not very good. It was awful. I know that my father was a dry alcoholic, that, we, that I grew up with a dry alcoholic, from what I've learned in the rooms. And, to, and his behavior was very much a dry alcoholic. And he, he had a terrible outbursts of, of, of temper, horrible, and I remember them. But when I say that I must have been traumatized, I don't actually remember them traumatizing me, but they must have done somewhere along the line, otherwise I wouldn't be so weird still. I remember once him taking a tablecloth and throwing everything onto the floor. We'd sat down, we'd had Sunday lunch, and he threw everything onto the floor. He didn't whip the tablecloth out and everything was supposed to land on it. Everything was supposed to go on the floor, that it broke and smashed. 
just because in those days we made our own powdered, uh, it was during the war, after the war, our own powdered um, mustard. Yes, I'm old. <laughs> and there was a dry room around the top, and my mother hadn't made fresh. And that was the terrible thing that he threw everything down. Coffee, coffee jug and stuff everywhere. And so there were quite a lot of outbursts like that. He used to irritate my mother so badly. He used to, he used to pick up the dining room table. And he, called, he used to call it a now girls. And he'd say, oh, let's have a now girls. And he used to pick up the table, but not high enough that everybody think would go sliding off, but enough that my mother would think it was going sliding off. And I remember my mother being so distraught that she bent a fork. And that was something that I heard for the rest of my life. Oh, let's get your mother to bend a fork. He thought that was like a great thing for, to happen. So those things, the fact that I'm talking about them now and I remember them, obviously must have affected me quite badly. Now we need to talk about how I became, how I went from being a, a little, a little, now I was a little, little convent girl, shy and drinking convent girl, to drinking with the burgies in Green Market Square and then to becoming an absolute slut. And... Drinking with the burgers in Green Market Square, I'm not quite sure whether it was worth being a slut or not. Unfortunately, I didn't enjoy being a slut because I was always too drunk. And do I regret that? Mm, yeah, maybe a bit. I maybe, you know, other people seem to have like, quite fun being sluts when they were drinking. <laughs> So when I, when I, the, the wine, the first time I had alcohol was on a Sunday at lunchtime. We had a little glass of wine like this. And I don't remember anything about it of being fabulous or not fabulous or whatever. And when I left school, I did not want to drink. I was not interested in alcohol. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to taste it. I didn't want to drink it. It wasn't because I saw it. I didn't, I didn't see what it did to people at that stage. Um, coming from England, you know, we, you start school at four years old in England. So... We were sort of like a couple of years ahead of schooling. So I think I came out of school when I was 16 or 17. My boyfriend was a drinker, and he wanted me to become a drinker. But there was nothing that I wanted to drink. And we went out one night, and he said, I've got the most perfect, perfect drink for you. Ginger brandy and ginger ale. And it was delicious. But I remember the next morning saying to my friends, you know, I had five drinks last night. Five! Normal people don't count their drinks, but I didn't know anything about that at the time. And that was the start. He, he eventually became my husband, by the way. He very nearly lost his life, but he actually died of a natural death, and he's very, very lucky to have done, had that to happen. <laughs> oh, I do need to mention about, about my husband. He's not here to defend himself, and, and I'm here to defend myself, but he did drink heavily, and... I was going to kill him. And when he was passed out, you know, in those days, I'm old, by the way, in those days we had Coke bottles with a very, very heavy bottom, glass bottom. A lot of you probably don't remember that. And I was going to hit him on the head with that when he was lying drunk at home. He didn't come home very often, so I wasn't getting much, getting much opportunity to do that at the right moment <laughs> when I was not already passed out drunk. <laughs> he was the reason for my drinking, obviously. If anybody had been married to that man, they would have drunk as well. So I divorced him. And then I drank more than I had ever drunk before in my entire life. <laughs> ever. I, I, became, I became a drama queen. 
and I was known as the drama queen. Smos was one of the things because I ran a, a, a flea market stall and drama queen was the other. And some friends told me recently that when I wished to go to the, to the fridge, to the market in Church Street, they couldn't wait for me to get there to see what drama I had happened to her. And I said to her, but you know, those things actually happened to me. And she said, oh, yes, we know that. And, but we couldn't understand how any one person can have so much drama in their life. And I thought, well, if you drank as much as I did, you could have just as much drama. But that wasn't going to happen to them either. So my husband's not here, but he's deceased, so I think I may say this. My husband ended up in jail. And I said to him if he wanted to stay married to me, he would have to move to Vintook. And he said, what was he going to do? And I said, I don't know why you'll get a job. I had his power of attorney, and I sold his car. And he said, well, how are we going to get around in Vintook? I said, yeah, we'll catch buses or trains like everybody else. They don't have those services at all. And when we got there, there was one bus. And we went down to the German club to sort of like say hello to the folks and met some people that we knew from Cape Town. Now, I don't know whether you know much about Vintook, but you're either born there or you go there because you're trying to escape the law or you don't know any better. <laughs> and there the drinking started really heavily. In fact, my husband was so ill, he couldn't get up in the morning to catch the bus. And he had to walk something like 10 kilometers with a bubbly to get to work. I caught the bus, you get off the bus, and you take your child into the creche, and you come out and you get on the same bus, and you go to work, and that's, how, and that's how that system worked. But the drinking was heavy, really, really heavy. I mean, at one Oktoberfest, I remember standing behind the bar, they, because there were so, so many hundreds of people there, all the drinks would be pre-ported, lined up like that, and I was behind the bar, I was behind the bar really drunk, and handing out the drinks to ever. I got beaten for that. And he gave me the keys and said, you drive. And as I was driving, I just went, and, and you know, he didn't, it just didn't happen very often. I, today, I cannot understand why I stayed. And, you know, people talk about how people who beat you are so sorry and it's never going to happen again. And they apologize and they buy you a nice presents. I never had any of that. He never, ever apologized. I never got a nice present. And I still stayed with the man. Like, what was, matter? what was wrong with me? I know what was wrong with me. I was an alcoholic. And a lot of these things I can put down to alcoholism. But when I joined AA, and I'll get to that just now, when I joined AA, somebody said to me, you know, now that you sobered up, you need to actually go into your background. I said, what for? She said, well, to find out, you know, like, why do you drink such a lot? And I said, well, I drank such a lot because I'm an alcoholic. I don't need to do anything more than that. I went back to suntanning. I also had a, <laughs> I also had a sponsor who had got two days longer than me in AA. <laughs> we were friends. We sponsored each other by, oh, what, should we go to the beach today? Uh, what's under the movies? Um, we, we, both did, we both did our steps, not together. Nobody took us through the big book. She did hers and I did mine. And we, and we, and we actually did them. You know, we did them properly. Well, we did them as properly as we could. And, and we both, and she stayed sober. I didn't. I, unfortunately, one night coming home from a meeting, I thought, meeting, thought I'd like a drink. Ooh, it would be nice to have a whiskey. Really nice to have a whiskey when I get home. And I had some whiskey in my house, and I had a whiskey. And I thought, now, this is a nice thing to wind down after an AA meeting, to have a couple of drinks. 
So I had a meeting on a Tuesday night or Wednesday night and Saturday afternoon and a Sunday. So from Sunday night, Sunday night I could drink. That's after that meeting, I could drink. But I had to stop on the Monday because I was going to meeting on Tuesday. And I didn't want to be disrespectful to the people at the meeting. And then no drinking on the, on the, on the Saturday because I was going to the meeting on the Sunday. And then it was all started all over again. And that started about six months of sobriety. I fell off the wagon and I didn't tell anybody until it came to the time. Because I had been selected to be chairperson of Cape Town's mini convention, October mini convention. And um, it was necessary then for me to say, you know, I've been drinking. Luckily, it was a lot, six months until the next, until the, until the October uh, uh, rally. And my, I, had, I had a tutor a lovely guru, and he said to me, how do you feel about it? I said, I'm going to be fine. And he said, okay, will you be honest? And I said, I will be honest. And I was allowed to do that. But when I look back on that drinking and why that was happening, it was because I was doing lip service. It's so easy to stand here. My name is Gwyneth and I'm now calling. Yoo-hee, bully for you. But it has to be taken right into the heart. Your whole body and soul has got to understand that you are an alcoholic. And I wanted to give up drinking. I desperately wanted to give up drinking. But somehow, I, I, I don't know, I would go to AA and I wouldn't have to drink anymore. I found, I found that, that, that the honesty part of me as well. I find even today I've got a part of me, this is an honest program, and I'm going to be honest about my dishonesty. I do a lot, like I have a lot of theater. I build a lot of theater around things, which is totally unnecessary. And if you are building, um, if you are, if you are like having props and, and theatre, it's not true. It's just something about it that is just is not true. And I'm working on that. My favourite sentence in the big book is, "We are not saints." I'm very keen on that. And um, I would never will be, and I never will get it right. But to go back to the two of us who who, who sponsored each other, she stayed sober right up until she died. And we had great fun, and we used to hijack the meetings. And if a position came up in a face-to-face meeting, say for a librarian and a secretary, the, at that stage there were the three or four of us, young women, with all these old men and, these, and, the, and one old woman. And we, we decided amongst us, who's going to be secretary? Okay, I'd like to be secretary. Okay, who's going to be librarian? I'd like to be librarian. So they were the, so the secretary, are there any volunteers for secretary? Are there any volunteers for secretary? And the other one would say, oh, I, 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 Gwyneth would, yes, Gwyneth. And the next one would say, I second that. Okay, that was, that was like done, okay, a done deal. And, this, and, and, oh, and like, we've got a position for librarian. Oh, yes, I, 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 I recommend Ivy. I said that, okay, and that was a done deal. So we hijacked those meetings and, and nobody could actually really do anything, you know, that they, they couldn't really anything do about it. And we got a name, I don't know whether there's anybody here who would remember, but Ultra and Gwyneth were the terrible twins. And we had a lot of fun. And we went to a lot of, we went to a lot of, 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 of um, conventions, and we, we had an amazing, amazing time. And I was very sad when she left. But I have only missed, I think it is four conventions in my 32 years of sobriety. And I have to sometimes say, how did I get here? I was in India for my 21st celebration, and when I saw how much work the people put into their sobriety, I really thought, how did I get here? 
And every now and then, I also think, how did I get here? Uh, before I close, <laughs> I'm actually going to read this. What I have learned during my years in sobriety, I need God and my guardian angel, Esther, in my life all day and every day. Gratitude, especially for the things I do not deserve, that I must not be too hard on myself. I must put AA slogans into use. And I talk about putting my brain into gear before I move my legs, and I need to put my brain into gear before I open my mouth. Awareness, not only in all of the beauty around me, of opportunities open to me, and of my faults on a daily basis. I need to remember I am not in control. Like to be, but I'm not. I still have a lot of insanity. Ah, oh, here it comes. I need to put my brain into gear before opening my mouth. I need to remember that life is exactly as it should be at any given time. I need to be truthful in all my affairs. I need to examine my motives about what I do for others and for myself. I can daily ask for defects of character to be removed. I don't have to do it on a once-off every time I do that step. I can do it daily. Do I do it daily? We won't answer that now. As a homeowner needs to do maintenance of property on a, on a regular basis, not wait for the roof to fall in, which could cause a total collapse of the structure. I must do maintenance spiritually, physically, and mentally that my structure of sober living does not collapse and I pick up a drink. I need to be busy with what I am busy with. I must not have conversations with people not in the room. I read that somewhere. And I like having conversations with people who are not in the room. And I can actually spend hours doing it. And then when you meet the person, they say something. And what you were going to say to them is gone out the window. I need to learn to be a one-minute manager. Not to go on and on and on about the same old thing. I must daily ask not to be smart-mouthed or quick-mouthed. I have learned to have extreme gratitude to AA members all over the world where I have been accepted and loved. I am allowed to change my mind. And I have changed my mind. I'm not going to finish on this because I want to say how what a great honor it is for me to have been asked to speak here tonight and to have these wonderful people on the platform with me and this wonderful chairman. The amount of work that was done to put this into place, especially by people on the ground, I'm not going to mention any names because you all know who you are. And I'd like to also say thank, thank, thanks to the big, big, big thanks to all the Adelon ladies who have helped so much to get this off the ground and all the food. Good morning and good day, everybody. My name is David. I'm an alcoholic. I'm from, uh, I'm from Salzburg, Austria. But as you can hear, I'm actually a Capetonian, also by heart. I've refrained, I love that, because if you do the cheering, you're allowed to always say that. I've refrained from drinking from the 27th of September, 2022. So I've just had my seventh, seven month anniversary. And uh, I'm gonna start off reading this from my telephone before the battery goes or whatever. So it's, it's the thought of the day. In the alcoholic world, one drink always leads to another, and you can't stop until you're paralyzed. And the next morning, it begins all over again. And eventually, you land in hospital or jail. You lose your job, 
Your home is broken up and you're always in a mess. You're on a merry-go-round and you can't get off. And that's what I was like. I was in a merry-go-round and I just couldn't get off. And uh, thanks to you guys, you were able to stop it and I could. And uh, I'm going to start at the end. You'll hear about you know, where I come from later on. I have uh, diabetes, and uh, you normally take tablets. People with diabetes, one, they have to inject. And I went for my normal checkup, and the doctor said to me, David, stop drinking. And I stopped. And it was the first time I had ever told a doctor how much I really drank. For normally a doctor, they always ask you, how many do you drink? Uh, one glass a week, or if you're good, you two glasses, you know, because you know, like two glasses of red wine, that could be healthy for you. But I said to this guy, look, I'm drinking. Oh, by the way, my doctor is here. So welcome. He's on Zoom, and he saved my life. But I said to him, I drink three liters of white wine a day. And he nearly fell from his, you know, of his chair. Uh, he then gave me a checkup, which lasted about three hours. I've never had a checkup like that before in my life. And he found that I was losing the feeling underneath my feet. And I went home, and of course, I had, the first thing I did is I had a drink after that. <laughs> okay. And then I thought about it, and I thought, no, I'm stopping. He's quite right. And I phoned up my sister, by the way, Gwyneth uh, is here, Lady Gwyneth, who spoke last night. That is not just somebody we call sister in AA. This is my real sister. So, <laughs> yeah. so I phoned her up and I said, Gwyneth, I want to go now to AA. And of course, you know, she, she knows how to do all of that. So she said, okay. This is uh, Friends in Recovery, and here's the link, and uh, you've got to get a big book, and you've got to get a sponsor, and all that sort of stuff. So I went into uh, Friends in Recovery, and you have all these little windows, and of course, your eye goes to the brightest one, you know, right in the corner. Who was that? Mel. And I thought, hey, man, this is nice. If I'm going to go here every night, and I've got this luscious girl to look at. <laughs> okay. I thought, this is going to be fun, man. Uh, you're only not going to only stop drinking, but you get friends, and, and, and that's what's happened. I'm really, I feel in the middle of AA now, and I feel very, very welcome. And uh, another thing that happened to me was Harold said to me, David, uh, we got a, one of our members is coming to Austria. Could you take him to a meeting? And I got to know Dr. Tommy. And it was such a wonderful experience for me because he's exactly the opposite to me. You know, he's like a pillar in, in the waves, as you can say. Uh, and he was able to calm me down tremendously. And he said to me, you know, we did a lot of negotiating. And he said to me, David, stop making mountains. And that's exactly what I've been doing my whole life. I was never happy in my skin. I always wanted to be somebody else. Uh, I was always on the run, and I would take a couple of drinks to calm me down, but it actually makes you go faster and faster and faster until you are really stopped in your tracks. Tommy wanted to go to a meeting, 
So uh, I took him. I'd, I'd never been to a face-to-face meeting. I didn't know what would happen. So, and I noticed in the car, Tommy had notes. So I thought, okay, he, he's going to share. And I thought it was, was great. My daughter came with. She's at Alanon. And we went to a German a, a meeting. And it was absolutely fantastic. Tommy told his story. And I was so impressed. And since then, we've started our own English-speaking meeting. So... Tommy, when you come next time, next year to Salzburg, we have our own English meeting. I was born in, in Kent, in England, and uh, as a three-month-old baby, we left from England. My parents had just survived the Blitz in, uh, in London, Second World War, and there were tremendous bombings. I just think they wanted to get the hell out of there. My dad got a job at the U- University of Cape Town, and we came over on the Carnarvon Castle, which was a troop carrier, so very rustic, uh, really rusty, rustic, and landed in Cape Town. I think they had plenty to do and plenty of things in our mind and had no time for us kids. And let's really come out in the fourth, fourth and fifth step. We were allowed to do what we wanted. We could stay out until 10 o'clock. We didn't have to do our homework. I was an absolute shocking student. Always looked out of the window, didn't do my homework. I failed standard four, and I was sent to Franschhoek boarding school, which I first of all hated. Like a lot of things in my life, I hate them in the beginning, and then I love them in the end. And it was the best days of my life in, in, in an Afrikaans school in Franschhoek. Franschhoek is not, wasn't at all famous at that time like it is now. So, but after a while, I wanted to be back with my family. I then went to Pinelands High School and uh, was able to finish my schooling there. Military training. I was in the commando, so we had to do 15 years. Okay, basic camp, then 15 years. They really bashed me. The little corporals bashed me in the basic training, and I thought, to hell with that. I'm not having that. So I did a course every year. I ended out of a regimental sergeant major, which I loved, because then I could scream and shout and go, you know, tell the guys what to do. Uh, and beer was very cheap in the officer's mess, and I cost next to nothing. I also did a, a st- I was, I applied for the, the Navy, the South African Navy, in their um, photographic department and was actually accepted, but I got cold feet. I had a lovely house on down uh, Lower Mowbray, looking on to Table Mountain, a fantastic job at Nationalitätsgrifte. Uh, I had a career, and my wife said, hey, man, let's get out of here. And I was thinking, okay, Sergeant Major and Angola War and all that sort of thing. And we decided to leave the country with our two little children, my daughter, one on the back and one in your hand. And if you arrive in a foreign country where you can't really speak the language, it's frightening. And actually, I've been frightened my whole life. And so were my actions, my decisions. My father was terribly important for me. He was, uh, I really loved, the, well, I still love him, but... Uh, I, I was like, I tried to become a clone of him and do absolutely everything that he did, drink like he did, and he did drink. We had a booze cabinet in the corner. Uh, we had those Sunday roasts where little boys with eight years old were allowed to get a half a glass of wine. 
and alcohol was really no problem in our family. It was never thought about it's dangerous, it can damage your health. It was the absolute normal thing like drinking water. My dad definitely rode around intoxicated, nothing, thank God, ever happened. But I really thought, that's, that's great. And when I went to Europe, I can re- still see the picture in the first hotel. I had my wine. It was winter, and I had my wine out on the windowsill to keep cool, you know. And we would have a drink after anything or before anything. Before making a difficult phone call, I'd have to have a drink. Because the phone call went off great, then I would drink again to celebrate it. So it was like drinking all the time. I managed to get through over 30 years as a functional alcoholic, but then I got immense depression, especially in the morning. Okay, and I went to see that doctor, and he said, stop drinking, and you know the rest, and my life is totally changed, and uh, I'm so thankful. And I was promised a ride of my life, I definitely have had a ride of my life, but they didn't tell me I had to fly around half the world to, to get the other part. Okay, well, with that, I'm going to end. Thank you so much. A very good morning, dear friends, dear family. My name is Nurvasha, and I'm a grateful member of the Grove End Alanon Fellowship. I'm honored to have this opportunity to share my experience, strength and hope at this rally and would like to congratulate friends in recovery on their third year of existence. Before I go on, dear friends, I would like to invoke my higher power by saying the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I would like to read the preamble for Al-Anon. The Al-Anon family groups are a fellowship of relatives and friends of the alcoholic who share the experience, strength, and hope in order to solve their common problems. We believe that alcohol is a family disease and that changed attitudes aids recovery. Al-Anon is not allied with any set denomination, political entity, organization, or institution, does not engage in any controversy, neither endorses or imposes any cause. There are no dues for membership. Al-Anon is self-supporting through its own voluntary contributions. Al-Anon has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps by welcoming and giving comfort to family of alcoholics and by giving understanding and encouragement to the alcoholic. Now just by reading the preamble to the 12 steps, Al-Anon has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics and we do this by practicing the 12 steps. This is where my recovery began, dear friends. After years of being in the program and doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, I had hit my rock bottom. 
not understanding my purpose in the, the Al-Anon purpose. I wanted to know what are these steps about, what's a sponsor, why are members so eager to do the steps? After all, I am perfect. I don't have a problem. The alcoholic does. And why do I have to go back to learning and studying, etc.? It was an effort for me to get a sponsor and begin with my steps. Now I can understand why members share, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. I was a perfectionist, demanding quick fixes. My impatience led me to the unmanageability of my life, the powerlessness of another person, the powerlessness of situations. The difficulty came when I had to understand and keep practicing let go and let God. Every time I tried letting go, I wanted to be God to control and manage. Not understanding alcoholism is a disease. I tried to take things into my own hands. Reading, understanding, and practicing step one now, I find myself having to possess the power of freedom. I always wanted the power to live my own life. One of our books states, step one, is the true beginning of our path to recovery. So step one has finally given me some freedom, some relief and hope. I understood and I continued calling up my sponsor to verify that nothing or nobody can be managed and controlled. And that was my powerfulness. I was eager to go forward towards my spiritual growth. I gained my serenity and peace and clarity. In one of our conference-approved literature, it states that the basic spiritual principle introduced in step two suggests that there is a power greater than we are that prevails hope for sanity whether we are living with active alcoholism or not. So here, I found my loving higher power, understanding that this force loves me with all my imperfections. I had to unlearn a lot of things, mainly just enjoying the simplicity of the step and rejoicing about my sanity, getting to know my higher power, Dear friends, I would like to share a personal story with all of you that happened last week. I lost my dear brother. My friends, my family are here to support me today, and I'm ever so grateful and blessed to have them here with me. Mom and Dad, I just want to tell you that I tried my best to help Achilles. I tried... Praveen had tried, and I am so sorry that he is not with us. Mom, I love you. Dad, I love you. I cannot be Achilles around, but I'm here to support you, to comfort you. I'm here to give you all strength, Mom and Dad, and also being in the program. 
I will give you the strength. I will give you the courage to carry on. Eleanor has given me that strength, mom and dad, and I'm here for you. He was my only brother. He left his wife and kids, and his kids are so adorable, they grew up in front of us. He passed away at the age of 46. He and his family lived with us for some time until my life became unmanageable. I said boundaries and meant what I said to him, but didn't say it in a mean way. Every night I got up for my fur baby and I found my brother awake with his bottle by his side and pretending to visit the loo. Deep down, I knew the cunningness of alcoholism. I, I got frustrated every time I saw him awake. I saw him awake and couldn't say anything to him because I knew that alcohol is a disease. I knew the baffling and the cunning alcohol ruined my brother's life. The next morning, my home had an had a stale odor, and I was very, very uncomfortable. I noticed I'm going back and forth with the powerlessness over alcoholism and its dis-ease. I loved my brother and always suggested the AA program, but unfortunately, the disease had taken control over his life. Understanding this cunning and baffling disease of alcoholism in Al-Anon has made me a strong, brave, and courageous person. I am today. It has given me hope, hope that his kids will know the effects of this disease and its consequences. His kids grew up in front of me. They spend their holidays with us. You know, one of my favorite books, dear friends, is this book here, Opening Our Hearts, Transforming Our Losses. And if I wasn't in this program, Al-Anon program, I wouldn't have known what to do. I wouldn't be applying the tools of the program to understand the disease of alcoholism. This book I'm holding onto with my dear life, reading and understanding about grief. And this is what I want to share with my family members to understand the disease of alcoholism and how it's taken over my brother's life. The preface of the book states that alcoholism is a disease of many losses. For those of us who are the relatives of friends of alcoholics. These losses affect many aspects of our lives and remain with us over time, whether or not we are still living with an active alcoholic. Only here in my Al-Anon program, I came to acknowledge, understand, and accept the loss I'm experiencing. I have acknowledged this painful reality of loss I recognize the truth in my feelings to ease my pain. I have gained my inner resources to pull aside the emotional curtain that keeps me blocked from my serenity and peace of mind. 
the emotional healing I am experiencing are all from my literature I read, and trust me, I get every single answer that I require. The members in my program are here to support me, to give me hugs, to call me, to text me every other day, and I am so grateful to have them in my life. You know, step one, two, and three states, I can't, he can, and I let him. My recovery is based on recognition of a power greater than myself, and that I am responsible for. I am responsible for my own happiness and serenity. Alanon's logo is a triangle similar to the one that you see here with a circle inside. This, the three sides of the triangle symbolizes our three legacies. Recovery through acceptance of the steps, unity through acceptance of the traditions, and service through acceptance of the concepts. I want to just tell you about my service in Al-Anon. At the moment, I am the district rep for the North Coast area. My service sponsor is always here to support me and guide me through. And I want to thank them for being so patient with me during this difficult time. All three are necessary for the triangle to remain a triangle. These spiritual principles unite us in our common bond, and that is recovery from the effects of the family disease of alcoholism. Just like Lois W., the co-founder of the Al-Anon family groups and wife of Bill W., had her primary aim in life, and that was to get Bill sober. I, too, had this aim. One Sunday, Bill W. said to Lois, we'll have to hurry up or we will be late for the Oxford group meeting. Lois had a shoe in her hand, and before she knew it, she threw the shoe at him and said, damn your old meetings. This was when Lois realized her anger and started looking at herself analytically. Just like Lois, I too suffered the disease of alcoholism. I began attending meetings on the 4th of July, 2010, and my beautiful journey began. We also have Alateen, dear friends. For the youngsters, for the teenagers that suffered the disease of alcoholism, and there's help out there. I just want to tell you, dear friends, to the newcomers out here, that there is hope in this fellowship. There is a loving members who will welcome you with big hugs. And I just want to tell you that we, I keep going back because I love this program with all my heart. I am getting what I want in this program. You know, this morning my sponsor sent me a lovely message which read, Life is about becoming a perfect instrument, an instrument that can express the divine will of God. When I have to read her words of wisdom every morning, there is something that comes out from there. And my sponsor has been my guide all these years. And I feel 
that she has been sent by my higher power. She's a messenger from my higher power. Because whatever thoughts I have, she's sending those words of wisdom every morning. For that, I am ever so grateful. In the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, the spouses of alcoholics often found themselves waiting together in the kitchen of a school or church for their alcoholic partners to finish the meeting. As these family members talked to one another about their own difficulty, they realized that they have been affected by living with an alcoholic and they too needed help. Out of their need to share their experience, strength and hope, family groups began to develop around the United States. In 1951, the name Al-Anon Family Groups was formed. And ever since that time, the Al-Anon Family Groups are growing by leaps and bounds. I'm ever so grateful to have all of you here listen to my share. Mom and Dad, I love you. My family members who are present, I love you all for being here to support me today. Thank you all, dear friends, for listening to me share. God bless you. And I want to thank our international visitors for being here with us today and for listening to me. Thank you very much. God bless you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, wherever you are on this globe. I'm Seanette, and I'm an alcoholic. To those of you who have heard my share, you probably know that I get very emotional. And I thought I'd write down today and read. Thanks, Navasha. Yeah, that's a tough act to follow. I'd like to start off the meeting with a set-aside prayer. Lord, today help me set aside everything I think I know about you. Everything I think I know about myself. Everything I think I know about others. And everything I think I know about my own recovery. We're a new experience in myself. A new experience in my fellows and my own recovery. So like I said, I'm Seanette, and a grateful recovering alcoholic. I was given a second chance of life at life on the 20th of January 2022, so I just celebrated 15 months on the 20th of um, April. I don't know why I was afflicted with this disease. Maybe it was to connect, to get a better connection with my higher power, to help others, or simply to become a better version of myself. I have become a better version since the beginning of my journey. What it was like, um, I'm not going to go into too much of my childhood. I have three siblings, an older brother, two younger sisters. My brother and one sister doesn't drink or smoke. I do both. My baby sister does smoke socially and drinks socially. Yeah, not so fortunate. Uh, my childhood, we had everything we needed. 
I firmly believe that my, my dad did the best he could with what he had. I took my first drink at the age of 15. My boyfriend and friends used to get together every weekend at his place, drink beers, hang out socially. We were blessed enough to purchase our own place at the age of 23, and automatically the parties moved to our house because there was no adult supervision. So this parties continued, weekend parties. There came a time when I started finishing the leftovers after the guests had left. My husband spoke to me. He said to me, I think you need help. I think you've got a problem. My response to him was, I wasn't finished partying. I just needed to, you know, I still wanted to party. And he kept on saying to me, you need help. I can't do this for you. You have a problem. You need to get help. I then started hiding my bottles, the full ones and the empty ones. I started stealing Eddie's alcohol that he had received from clients as gifts, thinking to myself that I would replace that alcohol before he missed it. I learned later that he did notice that it was gone, so so much for that. I started buying my alcohol at different liquor shops because, yeah, I thought that people would recognize me and then think that, you know, I have a problem. Of course, I was in, in denial, so... Initially, it started every night, just till I went to sleep. And then I started drinking in the morning before work. At work, I used to think, oh, when it's 4 o'clock, I need to get home, I need that drink. I think in 2021, 2020, they, because of COVID, they brought in 70% alcohol to work that was supposed to be used for hand sanitizing purposes. And me being in a supervisory position was put in charge of that 70% alcohol. Now who does that? Puts an alcoholic in charge of 70% alcohol. And you can all guess what happened. I started drinking at work. So now it was no longer a case of when is it going to be 4 o'clock? Now it was when can I get to work? Because I'm going to... And guess what? I wasn't paying for that then. It was the companies. They put me in charge of it. With the result that I had two car accidents, both on my way from work. The one was from work, but on the way to get more alcohol. I didn't make it. Two car accidents, and still I was in denial. I now know that my higher power was trying to tell me something then already. But... I just said to myself, ah, man, it's not that bad. Nobody got hurt. It's okay. I started isolating, preferring to be alone at home in my room while Eddie and the kids did what they did in the rest of the house. The kids preferred not to visit anymore because I wasn't spending time with them anyway. I resigned from my place of employment like I said to the ladies earlier, I, I gave up my job because it was interfering with my drinking. So now, unemployed, I had more time to drink. This is when I started drinking from morning till night, pass out, wake up, drink some more. I tried to stop on more than one occasion on my own, the longest being 21 days. 
I tried switching from beer to non-alcoholic. I tried not to drink in the morning. I did everything they tell you to do <laughs> in the big book on page 31, more about alcoholism. Alcohol became my best friend. My values and principles were non-existed. It was all about me, myself and I. I lied to Eddie on more than one occasion when he questioned me about the drinking. Initially it was brandy, and then he could smell that I was drinking. And I was told that vodka doesn't have a smell. I don't know. But even then, Eddie could see it in my eyes when I had been drinking. I remember the one morning I left for work, it was quarter to six, and he said to me, have you been drinking? And I said, no. I still can't believe that, you know, that is what it came down to, me lying without a blink of an eye. There was one evening he came home and he he gave me a look and he said to me, I don't even like you anymore. It was a look of total disgust. It didn't bother me at the time, though, because Eddie then moved into another room, but that gave me more time to be on my own. I no longer had to hide my alcohol. The bottle was just there next to the bed. What happened? January is a very significant month for me. January, my mommy's birthday is the 19th of January. She passed away on the 8th of January, 2020. I resigned my, from my job January 21. I'm just remembering now, I think it was a week before I gave up my job in 2021. That was my second accident also, so that's another note for January. That morning, I started celebrating early already, celebrating my mommy's birthday. And I suddenly realized this is what my life has come down to. I've got nobody to talk to. This is all I had to do daily, drinking from morning till night. I always had a relationship with a higher power who I choose to call God, and I have asked him on more than one occasion to help me with my drinking problem. But I think that that, that morning I begged, I begged and I asked him to help me. I can no longer go on like this. And... If you listen to my story long enough, you'll see there are lots of angels in my story, God incidences. So the morning of the 19th of January, 2021, I asked my higher power for help. And there was a knock at my door. I referred to as an angel in my story. It was my cousin. And um, I said to her, I need help. And she made a phone call to an Al-Anon member in, um, in Cape Town, a friend of ours, who then made a phone call to an RA, an AA member, my sponsor today, who made another phone call. And later that day, I walked into the treatment facility. The treatment facility only accommodates six ladies at one time, but they had a bed available for me. I walked into that treatment facility later that day, on that same day, the 19th of January. I walked in there carrying a full lover's market brown paper bag. I didn't know what recovery entailed. I just knew that I needed help. I walked in there desperate, broken, but I was willing. I just knew I could no longer go on like this. I didn't know that I had to stay there for three months. It was a long time. Whatever doubts I had were removed on the third night when I was there. Detox. 
with complimentary hallucinations. The decision was made. I needed to stay there for those three months. I was in a deep, dark hole. The counsellor threw down a ladder, which had 12 steps, and I grabbed it with both hands. I was asked if I had blackouts. My response was, what's that? At the treatment facility, I learned that I did have blackouts. The collateral letters my family sent proved that I was introduced to the ugly Shonette. My son even referred to me as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I was physically abusive towards my daughter-in-law once. I still don't remember that. There may still be more things surfacing that I don't remember, but I'll cross that bridge when I get there. I now have the tools to get over that. I learned that the grandchildren weren't allowed to drive with me. I was told that they were always busy. I now learned that the parents feared for their safety when they were with me in the car. I missed an opportunity to go shopping for wedding dresses with my daughter because it wasn't really a hangover. I was still under the luck, heavy, heavy, tight, as the big book says. When my daughter confronted me about my drinking, they were living with us at the time. When she confronted me, I told her to get out and find another place to stay, something I'm not proud of. I learned that my husband no longer had a friend or confidant. He was under the... Here I was under the impression it was just me, myself and I. I learned that I had taken my family hostage. They always had to walk on eggshells around me, not knowing what to expect from me. At the treatment facility, I learned that recovery is abstinence plus change. I learned about awareness, acceptance, and action. I learned that this program is simple. Find God, clean house, and help others. I started to attend meetings while still at Leslie House, the treatment facility. (laughs) The welcome I received is something I will never forget. I'd found my clan. I'd found people who understood me. There I learned that I'm not a bad person, but a sick person. I was blessed to attend a rally and a convention while still at the treatment facility. When I did my first face-to-face share, I was so nervous. But we had load shedding. We had the meeting by candlelight that night. My higher power was with me. My first online share, we had load shedding, as we all know, Cape Town, South Africa. But that night, the load shedding was suspended, so I could do my online share. I now know that my higher power is with me all the time. I just have to reach out to him. I now realize that God wasn't lost. I was lost. I just have to share with you. I know Dr. Tami loves this story. He said it before. <laughs> Let me tell you about the fourth month in June. In June of 2022, I went to a very good friend of ours, 50th birthday celebration. And I just felt that I had to attend, and I was okay with it. All those different shapes and colors, the bottles in front of it. I was okay with it. There was, I was blessed in the fact that the craving was gone. I could handle it. I was okay with good company, laughter, and tea. I don't like coffee, so I do the tea thing. whole night while the other people were busy with the with the, the drinks. And then, of course, we get to July with Eddie's birthday. So remember, I said to you guys earlier that when our friends got together, I finished the leftovers. 
So this was Eddie's birthday party, and he had guests over, and yeah, the guests leaves, and deja vu. There's all these half-empty bottles standing there, stemmed glasses, condensation running down the sides, ice, the slices of cucumber and mint. It is sleeping, of course, his party liquor. So now I need to clean the kitchen. And I'm looking at these glasses and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, nobody will know me. Just one. Nobody will know. I did a lot of serenity praying that night, third step prayer. I think what got me to leave those drinks that night and go to bed was the thought of, do I really want to go back to the way things were? Do I really want to see that look of disgust in Eddie's eyes again? And that got me through that night. I left the kitchen just like that. He sorted it out the next morning. In that example, I just want to say to you, page 43, the last chapter of more about alcoholism. It says here, the alcoholic at certain times is no effective mental defense against that first drink. His defense must come from a higher power. And my higher power was with me that night. What it's like now, Ed and I have disagreements, not arguments. I'd like to think that I've regained his trust. Not arguments. Where is Yvette? I can't see Salika. <laughs> She'll know what that means. will too. Sorry, guys. Now I have challenges with my children. That's okay. It took me years to destroy my family, the relationship I have with them, and I can't expect to mend it overnight, softly, slowly. Today I'm present for family functions I'm becoming a part of again. Today, I think before I act or react. Maybe that person is having a bad day. Maybe he just doesn't hear me. I try to put myself in his shoes. Today, I have the ability to respond instead of reacting. Today, I do an AA meeting every day. I do one face-to-face, and the rest of it is online. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor. I still attend my treatment facility Mondays and Thursdays on an outpatient basis. Today, I extend those hugs that were so freely given to me when I first entered the rooms. I told you guys about the sanitizer that I had consumed at work. So when I went into the treatment facility, it was the 19th of January, but my Christmas tree was still set up. I mean, that was the last thing that was on my mind. So when I came home, the Christmas tree had been taken down. So December last year, so it's me setting up the Christmas tree. And when I opened the box with the Christmas trimmings, There was this five-liter hand sanitizer laying there, and it just said, hello. I must admit, I did look around. Who was watching? There was nobody watching. I could have done so many things with that five-liter of hand sanitizer, but I chose to give it to Eddie, who was just a shock. Where did this come from? I said, I don't know. Just... And I realized today he's also following a program, and I realized today it was wrong, my reaction. I made my problem his problem, but we're still learning. I'll get there. Today I have a connection with my higher power. I must say to you that 
it's a great feeling when when you get the impression or the feeling that you are answering somebody's prayers. Just an example, I gave the guy a lift to church one day, randomly, and just stopped. And he thanked me profusely because he had been praying for the way to get to church earlier. He had had his toe amputated and he was in so much pain that day. And looked there, I stopped and I gave him a lift. Small things. I went into the shoe shop once and um, there was this guy that needed money for an ID or something. And I gave him a hundred rand that day. And when I got to check out, the cashier said to me, uh, ma'am, just for today, just for today, these shoes are marked down by a hundred rand. Now, is that odd or is that God? It doesn't always work out in, in a positive light. I know sometimes you try and do a, a good deed. You get told to practice these principles in all your fears. I remember the one day I stopped. The lady was coming over the bridge carrying carrier bags, and I stopped to give her a lift, but I had forgotten that my pug was in a car. And she said, no, thank you, no, thank you. The dog, the dog. Okay, the, the point of that is that I did try to help, so it doesn't always work out, but I try to, to get just a little bit of the theme of today's um, Intermarché. This program didn't just teach me how to put the drink down. It's teaching me how to deal with life. It's given me the tools. It's up to me whether I use these tools or not. This program doesn't promise me a perfect life, but I can have a sober one. This program has taught me that I'm not alone and I never have to be alone again. I'm very grateful for my support system, my fellows, my sponsor, and especially my husband. This program works if I work it one day at a time. I just wanted to put something in for the newcomers. Hang in there. It does get better. Everything will be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. If you feel that your life is falling apart, God is taking it apart only to put it back together again, better than it was before. The newcomer, the struggles of your today will be the strength of your tomorrow. And if you're not dead, God's not done. He's not done writing the story of your life. So thank you guys. Thank you for allowing me to be of service. As it says in the big book, page 193, telling my story reminds me that I could go back to where I was if I forget the wonderful things that have been given to me or forget that God is the guide who keeps me on this path. My prayer is that at least one person leaves this meeting today with a message of hope. Thank you for allowing me to be of service. I'm Seanette and I'm an alcoholic. Hello, family. I'm Tina. I'm an alcoholic. So I've been taught to say, God, let the voice be mine and the words be thine. I would like to say I prepared for this. I did not. I've never prepared for... um, any of these. I've kind of been taught to speak from the heart, and it really requires a lot of faith. I was up at six o'clock this morning, and I thought to myself, I'll scribble something down. You know, whatever comes out is what needs to come out, and hopefully something will come out that is helpful to somebody. I have to tell you, this is like an interrogation room here. Not that I've been interrogated, 
but a couple of immigration people every now and then. That is all. What you see here is a barroom drunk. By myself, I am a barroom drunk. I was a single mother. My son was 14 years old when I came into the program, but prior to that, I was, for the first 14 years of his life, a non-stop barroom drinker, right? And now I'm standing here because big Tina and little Tina get along now, and little Tina wanted to look like a beautiful Indian princess in a sari. So here we are, you know? But... I'll tell you what, and there are people out here that have done and are doing the inner child child work that sometimes comes with this. You don't all have to do it. You know, we all have different stories, and we all have different bottoms, but the traumas, slowly but surely, you know, they do say that you only, God only reveals what you can handle, and I use the term God only because I got sober in Rhode Island, America. There was only one foreign lady other than me. Don't let the accent fool you. I'm a Cape Town girl, right? And um, yeah, the train's leaving the station already. Yeah, it's gone already, man. Mm-mm-mm. So I was, I, no, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> I was born in England. It all started in 1962. But um, I'm an only child. My parents were, they loved each other. My mother loved my father. They loved each other. My father liked me. You know, my mother not so much. I was kind of the be seen and not heard. I have a very lonely childhood. I, uh, my parents always had a mission to go sailing across the Atlantic and they're gonna build a boat in the backyard. And they finally did that. And they took me out of school at Was it standard 10? I think I have a standard 10 education. I was 16 years old. I drank over that. I was very, very ashamed that I have no education. I drank over that. I drank over the fact that, listen, I got drunk. I was about 30 years old and um, arrived in Rhode Island in the town that I live at now, and I met this biggest, loudest guy in the bar, and I married him two weeks later, man. Baby came right along intentionally because I wanted to have a son. The baby comes right along, and I still stand here, people, 61 years old, shocked that at no point did it occur to me, marrying an American and having an American child meant you kind of get stuck in America for a lot longer than I've been happy with. But, you know, through God's grace, staying sober, doing what the women like Gwyneth told me to do. They told me to do. They told me to show up at meetings. They told me to... They told me not to get up in the middle of the meeting to go out and have a smoke, you know? They suggested I start dressing a little more appropriately. Back then, I was, I have, um, not something I'm going to share at this, in this group, but I have rape in my story. And so, you didn't come near me. You didn't touch me. 
Really? I didn't like women. I was a barroom drunk. I didn't care if he was your husband or your boyfriend or your brother. It didn't matter if he was buying me drinks. We were going to do whatever. We're going to do like things like Gwen talked about yesterday, you know. Everything started to change. 2005, you know, I was daddy's girl. I've come to find out because I've had to have outside help. She tells us in our book, you know, get outside help when we need to. But the beauty of it is if we have a sponsor, which I do, and our sponsors guide us. They're not there to be your shrink. They're not there to be your banker. Your sponsor is, they're not there to be your best friend. Your sponsor's there to tell you to sit throughout the whole meeting. You're not getting up for a smoke right now. <laughs> I did what, what these women told me to do. And I stand here now in our a daily reprieve, right? I have a daily reprieve for today. And what I've really grown up with is if I do today what I did yesterday, I stand a good chance of staying sober. I stand a good chance of going to bed sober. And it's really, it's a simple program for difficult people because we don't want to do it the easy way. I don't know about you guys, but my drinking was hard work, you know? You have to plan when you're going to drink. You don't want to run, run out of booze. I was, my, my drinking was rudely upset, un, interrupted by a child running around calling me mommy. You know, my son's literally playing ball out in the parking lot with whoever wanted to go outside and you know, keep an eye on the kid. I was ashamed of that. I was ashamed. I'm not now. I didn't know any better. I certainly didn't, in 1993, bring a beautiful child into this world so that I could neglect it, so that I could traumatize him with my drinking, my behavior. I mean, from a very young age, my son was having to self-parent himself and kick men out of our house, things like that. I'm not proud of it. But I don't beat myself up anymore because if I'd have known better, I would have done better. And I didn't know better. And I tell you, when I first discovered the word ignorance and the meaning of the word ignorance, you don't know what you don't know. Boy, that made me feel so good that I was ignorant. I didn't know. It never occurred to me that the other mommies weren't in the bar with their kids. I just was. I made it to seven years sober, cruising along. My sponsor had fired me at six years sober. It was time for synchronicity to happen, right? For God, for God's way to happen. And um, I was running around with a, a mentor. I had a mentor and not a sponsor. But I was going to meetings every day, and uh, my son was 21, it was Halloween night, it's now eight years ago, and he calls at midnight and he says to me, Mom, I just got shot in the ass, here's the doctor. And I'm like, this isn't funny, Sammy, you know, Halloween. And there's a doctor in the at midnight asking me to put, if during um, exploratory surgery, permission to put a colostomy bag on my 21-year-old son who had just got shot in a drive-by shooting in a bad neighborhood in Providence, Rhode Island. It was gang-related. 
obviously. My son grew up on the streets doing his own thing. But the miracle, the miracle of it is the bullet went, because you think it's funny. You know when you see it in the movies? We all laugh at it, shot in the ass. The bullet went into his left butt cheek, went in between his tailbone and his anus, and is completely, cleanly lodged in his hip and will be forever. Like, no damage done. But what it caused for me, not all about me, but what happened with for me, when it first happened for the first few months, I couldn't believe it happened. I was in intense dis- denial. But also... A lot of my childhood, my traumas, my childhood stories, I'm not going to tell you. If anybody remembers the earthquake in 1969, that one, that one. I'm seven years old. I wasn't in, wasn't in Lansdowne, was in, when we lived in Goodwood. That earthquake happened. I'm hiding in the closet with my dog. My parents left me in the closet. They were out in the street. They didn't come and get me. That terrified me. But what happened eight years ago is these memories just started flooding in. They call it PTSD, post-traumatic stress. Had nothing to do with my son being shot. Had to do with the things that had happened to me, the things I had done, the things that had happened to me because it was I had a part in it. But I had drank, drunk so much and buried it so deeply that I had PTSD. And I'm honestly going to tell you, it's like the best thing that happened. Because who knows where I'd be now at seven years sober. I was running around sponsorless. I had this. But I ended up having outside help, and I'm very blessed that I had outside help. And then I got... It's not suggested in America in the AA program for a woman to have a man sponsor, but the person I related to was a Vietnam veteran, David Green. I can use his whole name because he's no longer with us. And he taught me how to live with it. He taught me how to stay sober with it. I used to call him up. I used to go, David, David, I'm struggling. He'd say things like, don't struggle, you know? Um... So when it got sober, I'd be like, how am I supposed to stay sober? I've got to drive, I've got to park and walk past the bar to get to where I live. Park down the street, walk up the street. You don't have to walk past the bar. All these little small things that I could not figure out by myself. And the fact that I'm standing here is, I'm sorry if it's, it is me, you know, you, you knew what you were going to get. Well, you might have, you might have hoped that I'd prepare, but um, I heard a couple of things. I, I've had my my sobriety has been very much of the educational variety. I'd like to say I'm a book lover. I'd like to say I'm a book collector, a bibliophile. I hoard books. I don't read them. I hoard them. One day I'm going to be an old lady, and I'm going to be sitting in Cape Town reading my books. You know, but. The truth of it is, it's because one day I want to read them all and I want to be educated. I'm not educated, but I did actually go and do a Master Gardener course and then I, I followed it up when I, with a plant pathology course and I ended up being an A-plus student. I'm actually quite smart. I miss the whole boat captain part of my life, which if you're hungry, you probably don't really want to hear. 
that uh, was my, all of my 20s was spent sailing and drinking in the Caribbean. And if you want to hear some of the dirty secrets, my best friend for the last 50 years, who's not one of us, is over there, and she'll fill you in on some of that. But you know what? I got from doing this program and from staying sober and from asking for help from people, from women. I got to go to Dubai four years ago and float around in the salty water and make amends to my friend because I threw her off that boat in a foreign country with people she didn't know. You know, you can laugh, but I did. <laughs> um, the, what jumps out, what was jumping out of me, just to jump on with a couple of things I heard, is, um, you know, what I did to my child, I just passed on with what my mother hurt. This never made sense to me before. Hurt people hurt people, you know? My mother had zero parenting skills. When my father died, I was drunk. My mother threw us out of England. We never made the funeral. And thanks to people from the program and my friend over there, when my mother died, I was there when she diagnosed for cancer. I was there when we were in the hospice. I was by her bedside. I was the daughter that she needed me to be. And UAA people and my friend over there were there to walk me through it, to talk me through it, to give me somebody to blow steam off at. You know, I, I called my sponsor. I said, these hospice people want me sleeping in the hospice with this woman. They said, boundaries. No, you can take a taxi until the time is when you have to sleep in the hospice. <sighs> that generational trauma, you know, and until it's been my sobriety, it's been a learning curve, and I found it really, really interesting. I have a friend in the States who terms it as, you know, being sober and going through sobriety is not a one-step deal. Hate to break it to you, Sponsy. I know you're out there. We're not only going to do it once, and I love you, and I will call you later on. But you don't only do this stuff once. You practice it all day, every day. These things we do all day, every day. It sounds difficult, but it comes naturally. It comes a part of your life and, and everything. Jeanette was speaking about the disease, the disease. Somebody was speaking about the disease. When you break that word down, it's disease. Ease, and you break it down a little bit further. When you're doing something or you're worried about something or you're uncomfortable, I've been taught that God, your higher power, is in the ease. When you start to get comfortable, when you're like, I got to put her shoes on, I know that, just realized that. <laughs> That's when you're in the ease. And um, the other thing is, I can't, he can't, I think I'll let him. I really thought that meant, this is how obnoxious I was. I can't drink, but you can, meaning my ex-husband and my boyfriends and all these other people, they can drink, so I'm going to let them. Really, I got straightened out on that one very fast. One of my blackouts, right, oh, my Lord, we've missed the whole suicidal. I told you I was a barroom drunk. I forgot to tell you I was a suicidal barroom drunk. Um, that's what got me locked up in a locked, in a locked ward because I was going to jump off the bridge to commit suicide. I never tried it. Called the doctor's office, told them they didn't know what they were doing. The ambulance showed up. I called my ex-boyfriend, told him I didn't know where to park my car. 
I got locked up. It was the third time that I that I never I never actually got there, but I ended up in a locked ward in America, and um, I was in there for two weeks, and that's when I finally realized that I was an alcoholic. I wasn't just depressed, and and I'm okay with me now. I hated myself. I hated everything about me, and now I'm okay with me. And I, know, you know what the unfortunate part is if I don't like anything about you if I'm pointing the finger at you because I don't like something about you there's three pointing back at me something about your behavior something that I do man it takes some time to absorb that and make it part of your life and these God shots the synchronicity I'm not going to tell them all to you um, for me, for this alcoholic, if I do the same thing, it's repetition, you know? I stayed up talking to my friend over there until like midnight, two of them, till midnight. And really, when I woke up at 6 o'clock this morning, I thought maybe I should go back to bed, but I know that I need a solid hour. I'd like to tell you I sit cross-legged and mantra for a while, but I don't. I just sit in quiet. I have such a busy brain. I, I, let, I just need a whole hour of like my own, however I do it, it's worked since September 11th of 2007. Because you know, every now and then I'm thinking, ooh, two-way prayer. Somebody I know does that till we prayer. I should do that. I'm like, no. However I'm doing it, it's working. The proof is standing in front of you. What I do want to say is my sobriety date is September 11th. Not the September 11th in America, but the times that I have had to speak and speak in front of people has generally been on my anniversary. Can we just take a brief moment to remember everybody we've lost, we've lost a lot of them, all of us. And hold in our hearts the people that are grieving. Grief, grief is, is, is a, it takes what it takes, but just a moment. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Diren, a recovering alcoholic. Okay, I grew up in Phoenix. Um, I have been drinking for 22 years of my life. I grew up in Phoenix with a mom, my mom, my dad, sister. Uh, everything was fine. We lived a normal life. I lived a very spoiled life as I got everything that I wanted. Everything that I desired, I always got it. I think I picked up my first drink uh, fooling around, maybe around 10 years old, and it progressed, progressed and progressed till I got into high school, uh, started drinking with my friends, mum and dad didn't know anything about that, of course, I continued uh, drinking at school, drinking with the friends, lying, uh, no one knew at home what I was doing, until I started to work. I started to drink at work, drink on weekends, progressed to me starting to drink from once a month to twice a week, 
Eventually it started to go every day. But it was on light stuff. Beers, uh, ciders. And then I got immune to that. I could drink beers and ciders and I'd say soft drinks, pink drinks. And I was immune to it. I, was, I should not used to get drunk at all. And eventually I started to start drinking spirits. Uh, I drank spirits. I remember one occasion uh, I went out with some friends. We bought uh, a case of uh, some beers. We had that and nothing happened to me. But they were still drunk. And then I said, no, I need more. So by that time I was about in my, say, about 18, 19 years old. We went down to our local uh, tavern and we bought a zapper, red zapper. So my mom and dad had gone out for the function and uh, we continued to drink this. We drank and drank and drank. And we, I know zapper, you drink in the stock glasses. But we were having them by the cups, red zapper cups. And then I got home and uh, I spewed all over the floor. So now in that drunken state, I said, no, I'll wake up and clean it, I'll wake up and clean it. But I never ended up waking up and cleaning it. And then uh, my mom and dad arrived home and then my mom started screaming and saying, no, he's dead there. Because now the zapper, all the red stuff came out. So they saw me like lying in a pool of blood. And my dad said, no, this guy is drunk. And that was my first episode. And I was, I was hospitalized for alcohol poisoning. Progressed. I then moved to another company where I used to travel to Riches Bay every day. I continued to drink there. I then went overseas. I didn't like it there. I came back. And then I joined another company, and the, the one that I'm currently with, another organization, where I used to I used to work for four days and get four four days off. And on the last on the third day of work, we I'll drink till my last rest day, and I'll go back to work. And then I would not drink for those three days. Eventually, it started to become worse, where I started to drink at work and drink and drink and drink at work a lot. Not a little, a lot. So in this time, I didn't know that all this alcohol was making me more and more immune to drinking and not feeling drunk. So it took away the feelings, but made me drink more and more and more. And if I drank a bottle and I could have come and speak like this to, to normal guys, normal people, and you wouldn't know that, I'm, that I had a drink because I was so immune to it, I was so soaked into it. As it progressed, I started to drink every day about five straights of spirits a day. I would wake up on the hour every hour and drink to go back to sleep and drink. The feeling of numbness to me was normal. It became normal to me where I would, if, if I was having a, a week at work, if I was having a vodka, it would be on a Monday. I must have vodka the whole week. And then when I get sick of vodka, it'll go to another brandy. If I get sick of brandy, it'll go to whiskey. It'll go to gin. And on some occasions, I can drink all of that in one day. The downfall with that was is that whites fooling around and having a lot of girlfriends, I managed to find my wife in that, in that craziness. 
and uh, I have had three children with her. So uh, recently I would be getting very drunk and driving around with my children in the vehicle in that condition. So my dad always told me, you know what, Tiren, you need help, you need to go to the rehab, you need some sort of help. So I said, yeah, okay, it's fine, I'll get help. Don't worry, I'll get help. Eventually I told him, no, I'll stop drinking for one day or a few hours just to make them happy, and then I'm back to square one. It got so bad that I had lost my house keys and vehicle car keys. I had a job to do where only I could do the job, and I had an incentive of a next amount of money. So I did the job, and I got that money, and I drank. It was 5,000 rand. I drank that all 5,000 rand in one day. I then lost my house keys and my car keys, and my life was a total mess. Total, total mess. I lost my house keys and lost my car keys, and I could not know what happened because I was so drunk. So the next day, I woke up with a plan to find my keys, my house keys and my car keys. So I went and got another 5,000 rand, and I drank to that state to try and remember where I lost my keys. <laughs> Which never happened, I never found the key. So I said, okay, now there was no, I, I was drinking to, bear, to, to, to die. You could say that I was thinking to die because I was tired of life. I've been through life. I've been overseas five times. My 21st birthday was in Thailand. My mom and dad gave me everything. I, I, the things that I did in my 22 years of alcoholism, some people takes them a whole lifetime to do. So I was just like bored and I didn't just, I just had no feelings of anything. I was never taught to say sorry or have remorse or nothing of that sort. So I just lived happy that everything is fine and I'll get everything and that's how it was. So I prayed to God and I said, by Friday, God, if I don't find my key, I'll go to the rehab. So I never knew anything about rehab. I never even looked the rehab up of that sort. I was just fooling myself until my cousin, Dishal, he told me that there's a rehab in Cape Town and he will book a flight for me to go there. He just needs my medical aid card and my ID. So I thought, 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 Friday came, I couldn't find my key. <laughs> I, I said, no, man. <laughs> I don't want to give up drinking, but uh, I'll try and make a new key and see how it goes. <laughs> Eventually, my dad came home and I was drunk. And I told him, you know what, I can't live like this anymore. I'm going to go to the rehab. But I will phone you tomorrow. And I will tell you that I'm serious about it. And the next day came. And I was still drunk the next day. And I did call him and tell him that I am going to go. So on the 8th of August last year, 2022, I stopped drinking. Today I'm 264 days over. <laughs> this journey of mine at Rehab, I didn't know nothing about this program. I didn't know nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. I just went there to rehab, wanting to stop drinking. All these years that I was drinking, I was wasting money. I was wasting my life. But I found the courage not to stop. 
to keep on going. As I followed the program in rehab, my life had begun to change. I began to become a better person. I never knew about meetings and a fellowship. As I continued, the, the rehab used to take me for meetings, and as I continued to go, like Harold says, the cobwebs start to clear. And that was, that was exactly the, what was happening to me. So I went to rehab for 28 days. I came out for 18 days on a break. It was supposed to be a 10-day break, but I extended it. In that 10 days, I lost my granny. And I thought relapse, but I still held on and continued. I went back for another 28 days and I came out and I was lost and I came out, I was lost. So I got onto the internet and the guy Ivan at the rehab told me that Durban has one of the best places where you'll get AA. So I looked it up on the internet and I found friends in recovery. I used to go on and I met Gordon there at the 12 o'clock or the one o'clock meetings. And I continued, I continued. They told me make 90 meetings in 90 days. And I tried, and I met Harold. I met Harold over the phone. And the next day, at nine o'clock, he was at my office, there at my rescue. I'd like you to give him a round of applause. <laughs> Harold makes me feel like Muhammad Ali as a trainer. Who trained the, the trainer who trained Muhammad Ali is Angelo Dandi, and I feel like that today because Harold has trained me to become a young fine man who is strong in recovery. Thank you, Harold. I met Harold, and then Harold asked me to do 90 meetings in 90 days. So I started doing 90 meetings in 90 days. Harold by my side. My life has took a total total turnaround for me. What life's like now? I am free. I have no regrets. I look at situations wiser, full of hope, and with learning to respect the process. I have regained my responsibility as a good patriot, and now I have kids. I have three beautiful children. I also have a soccer club where I receive tons of joy in my heart to help and develop my community for free. I am graced with three fabulous children who already understand that I've had a drinking problem and that I'm now stable and I'm not afraid to be open and honest about it. Now that I'm sober, I get new opportunities to increase my level of thought and perspective. Also being someone who is not judgmental, I am extremely mindful of others and how others feel. I now know how to react to the sober me, to the soberness around me, to everyday living, to being me and just me. I, I also have found new friends that I could build a good future with. With loyalty and respect and humbleness, I want to give a special thank you to Karen Yvonne Marcel, who has always been there for me. I'm also very grateful for my beautiful and amazing wife, who has took through me in the eight years that we are married. Six years, sorry. <laughs> my mom and dad for the continuous support and my wife was stuck and stayed with me. We have literally been through hell and back. There are no words that I can give to her. 
to describe how grateful I am to you. I love you. In concluding, I want to share what AAS taught me. AAS taught me that one does not need to fall to learn how to get back up, but to stay steadfast, learning not to fall and move forward. Thank you, I'm Diren and recovering my toilet. Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Eddie. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Um, Kales River in Cape Town is my home group. Yeah, there's this, this motivation speaker that I listen to, and, and I think this really applies to me. Um, he said that his first experience with public speaking, as soon as he got up to speak, his mind sat back down. So <laughs> that's, that's why I need, I need my notes here. Okay, so how did I get here? I didn't really find Alanon. It was more like Alanon found me. I drove my wife to her face-to-face meetings in Curls River since she came from rehab in April last year. Not because I wanted to make sure that she went to the meetings, but because she doesn't see too well at night. And also I didn't think it was a good idea, you know, for a woman to be driving around alone at eight or nine or nine at night. So I sat and waited in the car during the meetings, occasionally coming in when there was an open meeting. In July last year, one of the, the wife of one of the AA members started the Alanon Kales River Group, and I haven't missed a meeting since. When I was preparing this year, I was forced to think really hard about this as I was struggling to find experience that I thought were relevant. Um, I'm going to start with the, with the early years, and a lot of this is going to sound familiar because of Shanet's share earlier on. My wife and I met and have been together since our mid-teens. We were part of a large friendship circle and weekend parties and drinking were the norm, and it was a lot of fun. By our early 20s, we were married, had a family, and a place of our own. As for the drinking and partying, it was essentially more the same. And this pattern continued through our 20s and 30s, and even into our 40s. Meanwhile, we were raising a family and building our careers. In the last three or four years, however, something changed. Our wife's drinking was no longer limited to weekends, and the, the volumes that were being consumed steadily increased. Although this was a concern, what really bothered me was the, re- the behavior that resulted from the drinking. She became adept at finding, at finding pressure points and would say the most hurtful things. Over time, this bothered me less and less until it got to a point where nothing she said really had any effect. I can't say the same for the rest of the family though. Our son and our daughter and their spouses were often the targets for these verbal assaults. In 2021, my daughter and her family were having a tough time financially. I suggested that they stay with us temporarily as, they were th- as, as we were thinking of buying another property in the area and they could move into the new place once this deal was finalized and the place was renovated. I should have realized that although this was only going to be for a few months, it was not a good idea. The drinking persisted and the arguments between my wife and my daughter escalated. My wife eventually said that she wanted them out. I'll never forget the hurt expression on, on my grandson's face the night they moved out when he asked his mother, Mommy, why doesn't Grand love us? Nothing to this day has hurt me more than experiencing that voice pain. Last week, the discussion talking at our Alanon group was what part have you played in the family disease? I never knew that alcoholism was a disease until I read one of my wife's books entitled Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age where I came across the definition by Dr. William Saltworth, who was the first to refer to alcoholism as an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. So what part did I play? This concept was something that I resisted. Surely I didn't play any part in the drama that was my wife's drinking. 
It took me some quiet time and having to step back from the situation to view it objectively and see my role. I decided to make a list and see which of these roles I had played or still play today. It was an interesting experience and I came to realize that it wasn't a single role, but multiple roles that I played from time to time. As the enabler, I tolerated and at times ignored the issue. Sometimes this seemed like a better option than getting involved in another unpleasant conversation and potentially having a lie to me um, about drinking, buying alcohol or hiding it. As the victim and martyr, I offered help out of obligation. The lack of appreciation bothered me, but because of the martyr tendencies, I continued to offer support while expressing bitterness and complaining internally about this lack of appreciation. I played the victim role in order to gain sympathy, pity, and receive compassion from others. As the provocateur or provoker, I intentionally initiated conversations that would inevitably lead to an argument, giving me the opportunity to give back some of what I was getting. As the conflict avoider, when a volatile situation arose, I would change the subject, put it for discussion, not bring up the subject of contention, we use what one of the ladies in our Eleanor group refers to as stall stapler, or the silent treatment. Mostly I think I played the rescuer. I remember thinking about this rescuer role when my wife was still drinking, and asking myself, if not me, then who? Picking up after two car accidents, trying to get away from the scene as quickly as possible, so the other drivers of the police don't realize she'd been drinking. Dealing with the drivers of the other vehicle, the tow trucks, the insurance, the panel beaters, Having to pick her up from work because I got a call from one of the colleagues to say she's not well and needs to go home, but we don't feel she's able to drive her car. If not me, then who? I unfortunately hadn't joined Al-Anon yet during the active drinking days and did not have the tools or members of the fellowship for guidance. I hadn't heard of concepts such as detachment with love and allowing the alcoholic the dignity of making their own mistakes and dealing with the consequences. When I first heard that the theme for today was a daily reprieve, I immediately thought, the reprieve from what? As my wife was in recovery, all the related drama seems to have evaporated like mist before the rising sun. That I ever got me thinking, was my now peaceful existence still contingent on my wife's sobriety? Heaven forbid this ever happens, but what if she has a relapse? How would I manage that? This topic of conversation once came up in our Al-Anon meetings, and at that point, I felt fairly confident that I'd be able to manage, regardless of whether she was drinking or not. What gave me pause, however, was one night I dreamt that she had relapsed. The anger and frustration I felt before all came rushing back, and I felt that way for most of the following day. It reminded me of how unmanageable my life had been before, and how her behavior and the results thereof had become all-consuming. I used to find it difficult to focus and concentrate at work, driving home and thinking, I wonder what's waiting for me when I get home. It was mostly a messy house, dishes piled up in the sink, curtains still drawn and windows still tightly shut, and my wife passed out in the bedroom. The fact that she was passed out seemed like the lesser of two evils, as I would, I would not have to talk to her in an intoxicated state. At that point, any discussion on how drinking was destroying our relationship and a relationship with the kids was ignored completely. I was aware that it would be difficult for her to stop drinking, as remembered when I stopped smoking, you know, what difficult time it was for me initially. The main source of my frustration, however, was more refusal to get help, even though she knew she had a problem. It was probably because I didn't have it growing up, but I wanted our home to be 
warm, to be a warm, loving place, safe haven, sanctuary. A few years ago, we bought a 12-seater farm-style dining room table from a woman that was immigrating to England. I could just imagine our kids and our grandkids, the entire family, 10 strong, celebrating birthdays and Christmases and enjoying Sunday lunches. Unfortunately, for the most part, that table had remained unused. I remember telling my wife early on in, the, in our relationship that we, if we ever got to a point where we felt our relationship was no longer working, that we'd be honest about it. As in my opinion, it was better to be alone and happy than married and miserable. And that's where I was. I was married and miserable. I just about made up my mind that I needed to move forward on my own when my wife finally admitted she needed help and went into rehab. On the 20th of January this year, my wife celebrated one year of sobriety. I am so immensely proud of her for achieving this milestone. She's committed entirely to the AA program, working with discipline and consistency. She does at least one meeting, but one daily meeting, still attends twice weekly group sessions at, at the rear facility, and has regular face-to-face -face sessions with a sponsor. Sunday afternoon naps have been exchanged for big book study sessions, or YouTube AA talks, Bill and Bob, or watching recovery movies. She will not go to bed at night without completing a step 10. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I would like to thank all of you, and specifically members of Friends in Recovery, for having a hand in a recovery. This online family support is an essential part of her recovery, and I know she loves being here. It feels like I have my wife back. What a pleasure it is to come home after work and be able to share the day's experiences with each other, good or bad, big or small. I think that's what I missed most during a drinking days, not having my friend, partner, confident to share the victories and have someone to commiserate with during the darker days. She's been intentional about repairing the damaged relationships with the children, so much so that this past Christmas, as well as Easter Sunday, we had the entire family over for lunch. I'm sure in future all the places at our dining room table will be filled with family, and the 12-seater table will see a lot more use than it has in the past. So how has Elanon helped me? It's probably one of the most commonly heard from new Elanon members. I'm not the one with the problem. He or she's the one with the problem. Just tell me how to fix them. What's the formula to get them to stay sober? And even though I joined when my wife was already in recovery, I wasn't any different, especially the getting them to stay sober part. Initially, I wasn't sure if, uh, if I was going to stay in Al-Anon or not. And hearing keep coming back and attend at least six meetings and then decide made me think it was some kind of cult that needed at least, at least six weeks to completely brainwash and indoctrinate me. Nonetheless, I kept coming back. For most new Al-Anon members, it's really difficult to start focusing on themselves as opposed to the alcoholic in their life. And it takes a while to recognize that taking care of your own needs is not an act of selfishness, but essential to your own recovery. Meeting and listening to people share their experiences made me realize what a positive effect Al-Anon had. Being able to talk freely within the fellowship that identified with the experience, whether it was struggle and strain of living with active alcoholism or the stresses of daily life. Being able to vent and unburden in a safe space acts as a release valve for pent-up emotion 
making the challenging aspects of our existence just a little easier to bear. I knew that the Al-Anon message had finally gotten through to me when we were at a work planning session a couple of months back. Our financial director who was hosting the session asked, So who knows Simon Sinek? Eddie, I'm sure you've read his book. Tell the team what his TED talk and subsequent book was entitled. And instead of saying start with why, which was what the correct answer is, I responded with the first and last line of the Al-Anon declaration, let it begin with me. My wife bought me my first Al-Anon book, How Al-Anon Works for Families and Friends of Alcoholics. This allowed me a peek into what potentially lies ahead, how the fellowship could provide a toolbox with a set of tools which allows one to navigate life a little more easily. Hearing about the three C's, I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it, was a huge relief. I've already incorporated a number of the Alanon slogans into my daily life. Listen and learn. This is an unusual one, although the meaning seems self-evident. In most conversations, though, I tend to begin formulating a response to whatever the speaker is saying, even before they finish speaking. To get real value from the slogan, it took me a while to learn to listen before I could listen and learn. First things first, this helped me so much to focus on priorities and help calm my mind and create order from everything that seemed to be screaming for immediate attention. Keep it simple. I think I just liked this one because of the version that I'd heard before that had the acronym KISS, K-I-S-S, which said, keep it simple, stupid. And my favorite, progress, not perfection. I actually started using this one before I realized it was an al slogan. I think I first came across it in a book I was reading. I can't remember which. I had A5 stickers made up and put up in each department in our workshops at work. I love this idea that I don't have to move, necessarily move mountains in order to move forward. I found the same principle in other personal development books I've read, that a consistent implementation of small incremental changes can have a massive positive impact on progress over time. The reminder of what you see here, when you hear, what you hear here, when you leave here, let it stay here, allows members of the fellowship the freedom to unburden in a safe space. Seeing new faces in the meetings and having them share their experience and leave after the meeting visibly lighter than when they walked in is an amazing sight. I've been on my own personal development journey for a number of years now. I felt like the gold miners who were involved in the gold rush in the 1880s in the Witwatersrand. At first picking up nuggets on the surface, few and far valuable, but few and far between. And then I got to Alanon, and it was like hitting a gold vein. So much value, all in one place. This is where my strength and hope comes from. Learning, understanding, and practicing these principles can only enrich my life going forward. I have an app on my phone that sends me a Bible verse every day. And I think it was Wednesday's verse from Matthew 7.24 that said, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This made me realize that despite all the books I've read over the years, there's so much that I hadn't done. I'd gained knowledge and believed that knowledge was power. Now however, I understand that the power lies in the consistent, disciplined application of that knowledge. And this is in my best interest. The consistent, disciplined application of that knowledge. And this is in my best interest. In other words, it works if you work it, so work it, you're worth it. A daily reprieve for me comes through doing my best to live the Al-Anon program, using the tools, applying the lessons, and this seems to be my path to serenity.
I still have plenty of learning to do and resentments and character defects to address, but I know the best way to do this is one day at a time. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Voya. I'm an alcoholic from Johannesburg. It really is an honor to speak here today. Um, I'm on day 727, which means in, on Tuesday I'll be hitting my two years. So I kind of feel like this is, this is my celebration. And it's amazing to, to be speaking while I can see my friends in recovery in, in person. I just want to thank the organizers for this. Shanette, honestly, when we have our meeting tomorrow, I don't know how I'm going to cope without hearing. We are not a glam lot. <laughs> we should all have virtual, we should actually have in-person hugs instead of virtual hugs. I can't wait for the next one where we can hear you say that again. So I just want to say thank you to the organizers. Everybody online, I know you've got FOMO, but actually it's really great to have you on. I want to thank those who've made the journey, whether it's one mile, a thousand miles. And I really want to take the moment to say thank you to the friends and family of alcoholics. And I really want all of us to stand up and give them a round of applause for the support that they've given us and for coming here. So that was your leg stretch. Right. So every alcoholic's journey is, is different. And yes, there are lines of, of similarities. And my, my life story, though, is relatively simple. And it's because of that simplicity that I often ask myself, how did I actually become an alcoholic? How, how did I get here? And even the bigger question, when did I become an alcoholic? And I suppose that's something that I'm going to have to work through and, and understand throughout my, my sobriety journey. Because firstly, when I think about my childhood, there's, there's nothing sinister about it. There's nothing even complicated or even remotely traumatic about it. I grew up in a very loving family, uh, two parents, uh, two professional parents, two brothers, uh, my parents provided for all my needs. Um, I had the best education money could buy in uh, pre-democratic South Africa. I caught my travel bug when I was young because we used to travel. They didn't spoil us, but we were, we were comfortable. And, and both my, fam my, my parents are normies. I mean, they drink, but they don't, they don't get drunk. And yet, with all of that, I, I felt a void in my life. I had this feeling that... I was an outsider and I was a bit of a loner, which was surprising because I grew up with a lot of friends and a lot of cousins. Uh, so I was surrounded by people who loved me, but at the same time, I did feel like I didn't fit in. You know, I, um, and even if I had people who were friends with me, I kind of had that sense of I was less worthy of that friendship or that love. And that sense of self, lack of self-esteem and imposter syndrome carried me throughout university. It carried me throughout uh, being an adult. And even now, um, there's little issues that actually crop up once and um, sometimes because of that insecurity. And I'm just wondering whether part of my drinking wasn't really about self-sabotage so that I can prove that I'm not unworthy. You know, I'm not worthy. I'm, I am unworthy. Um, but maybe it was also about looking for that approval. So 
The second bit is I didn't start drinking until I was 18. I, um, I was in second year university. I was at res. I mean, I stayed away from my, I wasn't living with my family. I was 17 years old when I started university, but yet I didn't feel the need to drink because it wasn't legal. So I didn't drink. I was a nerd. And I, I don't remember the first time I tasted alcohol. I probably did taste it while I was younger than 18. But what I do remember about my first experience with alcohol was my mother uh, buying me a ginger square. Uh, Gwyneth talked about it yesterday. It's the ginger liqueur with brandy and ginger ale. Very, very delicious drink. And when I was younger, I was drinking cider with my friends and also... At that point, I would occasionally get drunk, not, not often, tipsy, and I couldn't stand drunk people. I just thought, to be honest, drunk people were selfish, and they were losers, and they were weak. I just couldn't do it. So I, I generally didn't drink during the week, so it didn't affect my, my school. But what I started learning and noticing was that my tolerance for alcohol was higher than my friends. I would drink more, but still get the same buzz as, as my friends. Um, I never got a headache ever when I got drunk, like ever, ever. In fact, um, towards the end, I, still, I started getting headaches, but that was when I was starting to hit the, the two liters that Dave was talking about. Uh, that's when I started getting the headaches. But that, that tolerance kind of, I kind of embraced it as a superpower, right? I believe that that was my party trick now to really get in with the cool kids. And I started to drink more, and more so that I can impress and improve this, this uh, superpower. I mean, imagine I can drink the boys under the table. That was like, wow, you know, when you are in your early 20s, that, that was really an amazing thing to do. And, but then the problem is I started drinking more often. I started drinking during, during the weekends. And as I grew older, my, my drinking kind of became my ticket to fame. Um, I used it as the ticket for acceptance, especially when I moved to town or met new people, which happened twice um, while I was in uh, before I turned 25. Uh, when I started working, it was my my networking power. Uh, I managed to get myself into the wine club, the executive wine club, even though I wasn't an executive. Uh, the boss barades were the place where I really showed that you know I am the person to hang out with, and I. I mean, there's nobody who can drink better than a salesman. I've noticed brokers the worst, insurance brokers even worse. And I could drink like the best of them and at the year and functions as well. And it made me feel confident. It made me feel alive. Uh, I was outgoing. I was part of the cool kids. And I really started believing that the reason why I'm getting these big promotions uh, at a very young age is because I've kind of, you know, I'm in with the cool kids and I've, I've got friends in high places because of the drinking, but it's, it's really ridiculous because I, I really got where I am because of hard work and, and working smarter, even playing harder, but working smarter. But I believe that these are the things that got me in with the right people. And that feeling for me became incredibly addictive and I wanted more and more and more of it. So I started drinking more and it became a during-the-week habit now. Um, and as to the when, I mean, on reflection, I, I think there were many hints as to the fact that the drinking has started becoming a problem. Um, 
And I should have taken a hint when I drove my car right in the middle of a fountain in Cape Town CBD. Now, anybody who lives in Cape Town, they'll know the roundabout with a fountain. You cannot miss it. And yet, I found myself in the middle of the roundabout. I missed the fountain by a centimeter. I guess that was my higher power speaking, but that should have been the hint. Um, I broke my toe one night, wore a boot for six weeks. When the boot came off, I broke my other toe. Okay, my, my doctor said, that's impossible. How do you break a toe twice in two months? And I said, I've got an, I've got an ear imbalance. My ear imbalance is making me clumsy, so I'm breaking my toe. Um, I should have taken hints when I made very poor judgment about men. Uh, Gwyneth is not being promiscuous. She's just a player, baby. And that's what I was. I was a player, baby. You know? Don't, don't, don't hate the play, I hate the game. And that was my mission, that's what I told myself. Um, and the texts and the conversations in the middle of the night that I never remembered. Um, and also when I nearly lost my job, but a little bit more about that later. I mean, those, those were the hints for me, and I didn't see them as a sign of alcoholism, because for me, being an alcohol is being the hobo, you know? The, the man who's dirty, uh, who is, um, you're losing your job, uh, you can barely put two thoughts together. That was my thoughts about alcoholism. And it was about lack of self-control and failure. And one thing I've never been was a failure. So I, I just couldn't, couldn't admit it to myself. But the interesting thing is about three weeks ago, I was going through my iPad. I've never gone through my reading history. Uh, or articles I've saved. And three weeks ago, I found three articles that I read in 2015 where the question was, what are the signs of being an alcoholic? And I read through the statements and I realized that actually nine out of ten of the things they said were a sign of alcoholic were real then. They were, they were happening at that point in time. Uh, so it was denial, but it's very interesting. I don't remember reading these articles. So those was during the blackout moments. So during my blackout moments, I would read up, am I an alcoholic? And the answers were yes. But instead, I didn't see it. So what I did is I told my friends I'm taking a liver break. Taking a liver break. I'm not going to drink for six months. I'm not going to drink for three months because I'm not an alcoholic. Uh, but I would come back and drink twice as much afterwards. So those were the signs in 2015 but I only joined AA on uh, May the 9th, uh, 2020. It was a week after being sober. Um, and uh, the week of sobriety came after like an epic seven-month binge during COVID. I, I had taken a sabbatical. And I said earlier on about nearly losing my job. I technically didn't lose my job. But I shall say in the interest of disclosure, I was given a very strong financial incentive to work from home. And I took it. I, it was a period, it was a very stressful period and, and humiliation to be asked to go, but at least they were willing to pay me to go. Um, and I took the freedom. I said, fine, I'm going to take a year off. Anyway, I'm going to be a mother for a year. Uh, and then I'm going to drink my wine and chill. But I can't remember what happened in the seven months that I took that sabbatical because I don't think I was much of a mother. I was more of a wine drinker. My glass of wine stopped from being this small to this big. 
And I don't remember much about the sabbatical. I think it was a blessing that I got headhunted seven months into the sabbatical. And on the eighth month, I joined what is now my dream job, like the best job ever. And I feel fortunate that, you know, you know, though somebody said, and I read something where they said, things didn't happen to you, but they happened for you. So I'm actually glad that I got pushed out of my old job because I started to straighten out and realize what's important to me. And what was interesting is that when I started my new job, I found my habit hard to break. So I was still sleeping late. I was still drinking. Um, I was still, I mean, in my first month, I was flaking out in meetings already. But with the depression, because I suffered from very severe depression, my therapist just said, enough is enough. You either go and get help, I stop treating you. And to be honest, I, I joined AA to get sleeping pills. I didn't care about the antidepressants. I thought, sure, I need my sleeping pills. Uh, I'm going to just join AA. I'm going to prove to my therapist that I can't drink for one year. And then after a year, I'm going to go back to drink. But it's just one year. Just one year. I'm going to just do that. But the rest is history. I'm here. I'm about to celebrate two years. My husband asks me, how long are you going to be sober for? And I always say, it's one day at a time. I don't know. Um, it is, I'm putting it out to the universe. And I hope in a year's time, I will be, I'll be saying you know, the same thing, that it's only one day at a time. And I will see what happens next year. Uh, so I'm, I'm healthier. I'm happier. I'm content. The, the need for approval is not, is not so strong anymore. So it, it is true that the whole thing about self-seeking and approval that becomes less important to you. Yes, it's still important to me, and I'm working through it, but it doesn't become the thing that drives me. Um, I've reached a point where I'm like, you know, it's enough. Just enough is enough. What you have is enough. You don't need anything more. So the, a few things I've learned, apart from the 12 steps, there's 12 things I've learned since joining AA. I'm not going to share all of them because I'm actually speaking tomorrow for my two-year speak. Uh, so I must save some for tomorrow. So if you are online, come in and listen to the rest. I'll just share six things I learned about AA. The first one is sobriety is the best savings plan. It really is. Um, I don't need the data bundles anymore to do the overnight texts. Um, I don't need to buy ibuprofen anymore. I mean, I used to, towards the end, I started having the headache. So I spent a lot of money on Nurofen because, you know, you, you learn those tricks where you take like two Nurofens before you go to bed and the next night you're fine. Uh, my stomach problems are gone. I don't have to pay the medical bills anymore. Um, I used to convince myself that the medical bills give me a tax break. You know, so the more I get sick, the better the tax break. <laughs> Kardashian problems, but it's, it's, it's like, it's really dumb. Uh, not spending money on the medical bills is the best saving to begin with. So that's the first one. I'm not allergic to toothpaste. I used to think I was allergic to toothpaste. I mean, the denial. Because every morning when I brushed my teeth, I had the gag reflex from all the throwing up from the night before. So I told myself I'm allergic to toothpaste. I'm not. I'm not allergic to toothpaste. Um, and throwing up when you're 100% sober is just the worst, most disgusting thing ever. Um, it, it really is. I had a stomach bug three weeks ago, and I was like, I used to throw up like this every day. And I used to think it's a badge of honor. I'm clearing the system for the next two bottles of wine. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, 
alcohol has the moifant fair effect. I don't know if you know, guys know the expression in Afrikaans, moifant fair, which means pretty from far. Uh, but then the other end of the sentence is fair fan moi, <laughs> far from pretty. And when I look at some of the people that I used to hold in such high regard, I actually realized it was the alcohol. Um, you know, the people you thought were real friends, the only thing you had in common with was friendship. Uh, the guys you had relations with are uh, ugly. No redeeming qualities inside and outside. And your friends are not your real friends because they never told you you can't dance. Nobody took the videos. I thought I danced like a gazelle. And actually, I looked like a stomping camel. And there was no video evidence. Nobody has ever shown this. And it's only now when I look at myself dancing, my kids and I do all these dance videos, I'm like, oh my God, I can't dance. So everything looks rosy with alcohol, but actually the reality is even worse. Eddie, ex-smokers are worse than ex-drinkers. They're more judgmental. I think it's because you, they don't have their own association or anonymous. They can't share their story of strength, hope, and recovery. Nobody cares. So they take it out on the ex-smoker, on the current smokers. Whereas the, you know, the ex-drinkers are fun. You know, they're not judgmental. If you drop it, um, if you relapse, they'll, they'll embrace you. When you see other drinkers, you don't go, yeah, look at them, look at them, look at them drinking. You know, you kind of think, okay, they're able to have their fun. And then when you look at other alcoholics, you're like, how can I help? Ex-smokers, the worst. They're like, yeah, disgusting habit. We are like, you know what? We can help you. Um, my higher power can be the color of my lipstick. It can. It can be anything. It can be a tree. It can be a banana. Um, and I think what I've learned is I, I was avoiding Alcoholics Anonymous because I truly believed it was a God game. It's like the God squad. But it actually really is about spirituality. It really is about handing over to a power greater than yourself. And what I've come to realize that it can be anything. The lipstick for me is confidence to take, tackle another day. Uh, my AA group is my higher power. Whether it's the people who've left us, Billy, Dave, Friedrich, may they rest in peace. Whether it's the, the OGs, Harold, Pravin, Gordon, uh, Uncle Dr. Steve, Eric, um, the people I joined AA with when I started, Dante, Mbewo, Rose from Compton, Cornell from Bredasdorp. Remember Cornell, guys? I used to absolutely love her. But everybody is, is really your higher power. And I also hope that I'm somebody else's higher power, that Trish, who's celebrating her nine months, will celebrate her year, you know, uh, that Lucas, who's on 266 days, uh, can draw on the strength of AA, and that I will, I will one day, you know, see them celebrate the year and come up here at the next rally. And the last one, and I want to say to the Al-Anon people that this is my experience. It's not other people's experience. So if the people try it, uh, you must just tell them where to stick it. But I use celebrating my sobriety as an excuse to get the things that I never used to get from my husband. Um, all things he would never get to spend money on. So I find that sobriety is the perfect immunity for what I want. So I'm like, but I'm six months sober. I need this. Oh, I'm celebrating two years in a week, so I need this trip. 
Um, I think I flew too close to the sun with my second year, so my husband is going to actually really tell me where to stick it. But um, you can use it for a while, maybe two years at most, to get a lot of things. And, and yes, as I said, all are non-members. It's, it's mine. There's a disclaimer. If they try it, you must tell them as well that, no, you know it's a trick now because you manipulate us. So I'm using it to get what I want. But what I'm getting out of it is the promises. Um, I'm living the promises, and I'm really grateful to AA for everything that they've done for me. Um, I stand here on the shoulder of giants, uh, and the giants are my Alcoholics Anonymous members, and my giants are my friends and family who have stood behind me during this time. Um, and yes, in a year's time, I know I'll be standing here again in Johannesburg, not Cape Town. It's nothing in Cape Town. Lots of things in Johannesburg. So maybe four years' time, I hope to be standing in Johannesburg, sharing my experience of strength, hope, and love. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Harold, uh, for really uh, this session and uh, my fellow uh, speakers here. On this uh, really wonderful day in which... Uh, our topic is a daily retrieve, reprieve. I'm Tammy and I'm an alcoholic. I belong to the Friends in Recovery online group and the Soweto and Sentin face-to-face groups. May I repeat that my gratitude to the group for me to be of service in this our inaugural rally. Service together with recovery and unity, are the foundational cornerstones of our program. Service keeps us on our daily reprieves, and I can attest to that. I have not had a drink for 16,599 days. Before this, I could not, even for a single day, stay without a drink. Liquor was my master. It decided if I go to work or not, who my friend should be, if I eat or not, whether I wake up or not. It taught me to lie still and manipulate people and situations. My grandmother brought me up as my mother was reorganizing her life after a divorce from a brutish relationship with my father. My father was a boozer of note and wife a boozer to boot. I only met him twice, and on both occasions he was drunk and drinking as he talked to his children, Tammy and Vuiswa. He ultimately committed suicide in 1957. As we laid him to rest, I swore that I would never drink. But as I grew up, I was pampered and coddled as this clever child. I expected to be praised every now and again as my ego took the better of me. To exacerbate things, I did the then standard five and standard six in one year, going to secondary school a year earlier. This reinforced my ego that I'm a brilliant little thing. I had difficulty mixing with my childhood peers. I would not or could not play with them and was always sulking, perhaps expecting them to wipe my feet. I was stubborn and always wanted to have my own way. Twice I ran away from home. 
I always felt inadequate, as was still I was short and plump. And to add to this, when other children were brought to a pot, Christmas clothing, my sister and I had to make do with clothing soon for us by our grandmother. The other kids teased us no end about this, and my feeling of inadequacy deepened. I would do anything to get attention or affirmation. I had my first drink in 1962 in my final metric year. I drank with the bigger boys as being with and drinking with them made me a big boy. We drank a cheap wine known as Lieberstein. We thought we were having fun, but for some, especially Tammy, it was the first step towards an agonizing life as an alcoholic. In high school, I also got into student politics and in 1963, was arrested on my way to exile. Of the thousand incarcerated on Robben Island and other prisons over the years, many were below the age of 18. Of note is that while the other young prisoners romanticized about cars and girls, I fantasized on how I would drink after my release. This was a clear warning that something was wrong. Unsurprisingly, on my release from Robben Island and while being driven to Cape Town Station by the police, I made them detour to a bottle store. As a result, Egg was pooped drunk on the train journey from Cape Town to Johannesburg. After my release from prison in 1965, I got a job as a cashier. I then had money to resume my drinking curricular that started in 1962. Soon this money would not be enough as my drinking progressed. In 1968, I enrolled at Forte University and needless to add, learning interfered with my drinking. I recall an incident the student mass meeting at the university. Before the meeting, like many other students, I had taken a good swig of brandy. News came then that civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King had been shot dead. I burst into tears, loudly to the hilarity of the students. And as my embarrassed but giggling friends led me out sobbing uncontrollably, students shouted and chanted as they chuckled, ah, shame. Fortuitously, later in the year, there was a lecture boycott which ended when the police were called. As a result, the university expelled 21 so-called instigators. I was included as my spelling prison suggested. I must have played a, link, a leading part. I left the, city, the university in glory. I went back to my old job and continued with my drinking. My salary was now definitely not enough, and I started stealing at work until I was fired. I was in the wilderness in the years that followed jobless, and many a time without a place to sleep. The joke is that when I resumed my drinking in 1965, it was scorched on the rocks to reflect what I called my high class status. Drinking was below my status, wine was for scholars, and I did not touch or drink traditional beer as I considered it was mad. But when I was in the wilderness, my thoughts about brandy changed. My thoughts about wine or traditional beer changed. 
I now reason that brandy was a respectable drink and wine was acceptable as it was even served in church. I now consider traditional beer a healthy brew with essential vitamins. I thus drank anything, including concoctions, as I bombed out every night. On one night after a drink with friends, I again had no place to sleep, and I had a deliberate tiff with the police, and I was then locked up for the night. I thus had a place to sleep that night. On waking up, I had been undressed in a dirty worn trouser with patches and a, and a torn jersey were next to me. I was the typical dirty hobo as I wore this clothing, and this is how I got to court. As it is fashionable today for our young people to wear torn clothes with patches, they should at least, they should at least recognize that I was, a, I was a pioneer in this type of dress. In 1972, I was employed as a journalist and went back to my so-called upper-class drinking. Thankfully, God had his plans for me. My friend Joe and I used to drink together. By the grace of God, he found AA in 1971 and decided to get his drinking mates on the program. He was relentless in his mission, and for four years, I was in and out of meetings in Indonesia, Coronation and Togozweni Whistle Stop, Johannesburg City, Tara Hall, and so on. Even when I was staying in a back room at the Shibin, he was on my case. On one occasion, Joe said we were going to a party in the nature. I grinned inward, inwardly as I said to myself, now he's talking. It was a Thanksgiving with cold drinks, coffee, and cakes. Not a drop of liquor. I was in high sulk as he drove me home. However, on one fateful day in November 1977, I was in a Shibin after I had taken two weeks' leave from my newspaper job just to drink. As I was drinking, something made me stand up, and without a word to anyone, I went home. My family was shocked to see me home early and not staggering. I hardly said a word. The following day, I did not wait for a lift to the whistle stop AA meeting, as was custom, but got into a taxi and went to the meeting on my own. When I stood up at the meeting and said, I'm Tammy and I'm an alcoholic, it was from the bottom of my heart. The meeting, detecting the sincerity in my voice, clapped as it welcomed me into their inner mist. I still become emotional when I think of November 16, 1977. It was the day that God tapped me on the shoulder and said, this for my child and no further. November 17, 1977 was my first day without alcohol. And with the help of AA and my higher power, I've kept it that way. You and I are now part of that global family whose ancestry flows from the crusades of Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith in the 30s and 40s. These crusades culminated in the seminal 10th Annual Convention of AA in St. Louis in the United States in July 1955, attended by 5,000 people. 
As reflected in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, the convention was pivotal in the evolvement of AA. This Friends in Recovery Runley, if I may say, is also a major step and an exciting one in the journey of Friends in Recovery. According to the book, the St. Louis Convention was Bill Wilson's last major public appearance. And in his speech to the convention, he explained the word anonymous in Alcoholics Anonymous. It was not only to protect us from public alcoholic shame and stigma, but he continued, its deeper purpose is to keep these full egos of ours from running hog wild after money and public fame at, at AA's expense. It was at this convention that Bill Wilson paid tribute to Dr. William Silkforth, who he said supplied us with the tools with which to puncture the toughest alcoholic ego in those shattering phrases, the obsession of the mind that compels us to drink and the allergy of the body that condemns, uh, that condemns us to go and die. Hence, we in Friends in Recovery are aware that we suffer from this double malady and we are on a daily reprieve. A reprieve is the postponement of punishment or delay of execution. Thus, each day we postpone a relapse or a return to our punishing life of the past. That's how important this daily reprieve is. We have come to accept that the daily reprieve means that we acknowledge that we must, we must live our messed up lives a day at a time as this makes adherence to the program that much simpler. We know that as alcoholism is a permanent and irreversible condition, experience has taught us not to make any long-term promises about staying sober. My experience as Tammy is that when I was first told that I must forget drinking for the rest of my life, I dismissed this as claptrap. As my drinking worsened, and I did not likewise what I saw in the mirror, I began to listen to the message of AA. But I still thought that not drinking forever was bankham. I argued, and strenuously too, that it would be a dull life without alcohol. I asked, what would I do with my time? Nevertheless, when Joe and others told me to just think of today, it made it workable, but the denialism in me said, give it a try and show them it does not work. You see, I was in that schizophrenic mind of ours, where when it suits you, you are an alcoholic, and when it doesn't suit you, you are not an alcoholic. Yet I was experiencing the shakes and could not even pick up a cup as my, as my hands shook. Common friends detected that I tried the program, but my denialism said you dare not. As my denialism held sway, I mentally negotiated a middle point in which I, could, I would alternate, drink on 124 hours a day and stay sober on the next 24 hours a day. And then the next month, I would drink 124 hours and stay sober for the next two 24 hours. This is how I was trying to reorganize 
my life as I was in denial. And this is the insanity of the alcoholic. As I was meeting you guys halfway yet, I was the person who desperately needed help. As we, all, as we always say, I wanted an easier and softer way. This was despite the torment I was going through, which would see me wake up in the middle of the night and go on my knees as I pray to God, making all sorts of promises. The next morning, the vicious cycle of drinking would start again. However, the notion of day by day was now becoming acceptable despite my continued dislike of the word alcoholic. My ego reasoned that I am merely over drinking, same as other people over it. All I had to do was reduce my drinking. But on November 16 and 17, Tammy gave in and was willing to go to any extreme to avoid a drink. Through this daily reprieve, I've been able to stay sober these last 45 years. And this is the miracle of the daily reprieve. Bill Wilson describes this daily reprieve as a paradox of AA, which in his words is regeneration. He says, it is a rebirth as it is arousing out of complete defeat and weakness. The loss of one's old life as a condition for finding a new one. This applies to me, hence I say yes, by the grace of God, I now have a new life. AA has given us a new sense of purpose underscored by recovery, service, and unity. Service is critical and is inextricable, and inextricable for the maintenance of our daily reprieves and simply gushes out on recovery. Hence, as evidenced by Joe and all of us, recovery is followed by a flash of energy as we go out of our ways to 12-step people. We go on 12-step campaigns because we cannot believe it that we are no longer drinking. I was on cloud nine, and in my zeal, I wanted even to 12-step patrons at the Shibin I used to frequent. The Shibin queen gave me one dirty look, and I got the message. <laughs> I now reflect that in the first few hours of my sobriety, I was not really on the program. I was nonetheless a regular at meetings and always wanted to share or comment after speakers. My ego stressed that I had to give these alcoholics some pearls of wisdom. I was pushing the bottle away as I thought AA was only about sobriety. Thankfully, my fellow alcoholics and sponsor patiently told me that it was about the 12-step program and it is not about mere sobriety because you then just become a dry drunk. I listened and started reading and, and I stood my journey. The ultimate is my spiritual reawakening, which is now an, owing, an ongoing relationship with God. Page 85 of the big book states, we are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How best can I serve thee, Lord? Thy will 
and not mine be done. The daily grief is inextricably linked to our relationship with the God of our understanding. For me, one does not exist without the other, not when we ended over our will and our own lives to the care of God as we understood him. Hence, the book big says, this daily retrieve is contingent on our spiritual renewal. In my youth, I was the regular churchgoer and doing all the rituals. My spiritual awakening has seen me cut out the rituals and I instead have a conscious relationship with my God. When I'm trying to sort out an issue, I close my eyes, weigh all the options, and I am in silent, and I am in silent communication with God. And ultimately, God gives me the solution. In addition, praying every morning or evening is my way of ensuring that I continue this daily reprieve. The third, third prayer plus the roots, the roots of my ongoing, of my conscience regarding my ongoing ego problem. My ego raised its ugly head now and again, as most of the time I'm, a, I'm unconscious of it, until somebody reminds me that it is not about you, but about others. Hence, I continue to pray, God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that, over, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. This conscious contact with God has also provided me with answers to some of the questions I had. For instance, I used to ask God, if there is a God, why did he allow my father to be a wife abuser and, and pressure to such extent that he committed suicide when he realized the enormity of his behavior and deeds. Because of this contact with God and my daily reprieve, I have forgiven my father for abusing my mother. After all, during my drinking days, I also abused and took advantage of that same woman, causing her years of anguish and suffering of seeing her son, of seeing her son go down the drain following in the footsteps of his father. I now know that my father was a sick person. Just as I was sick, just as I was a sick being with my affliction to liquor. When I have that first drink, I could not stop until I passed out. Today, the daily reprieve is the reality that keeps me on the dry. That daily reprieve, which is contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual conditions, has enabled me to go down memory lane. I now see how God protected me in numerous situations. I used to go home very drunk and in the middle of the night, go past very dangerous areas. The next morning I would be told that some people had been killed on that same path. How I escaped was because of God. He had protected me. There are many other similar situations which many call coincidences and what we call God incidents. God is consciously present in our lives. As Frank V always says, he is virtually sitting next to each other. He's virtually sitting next to each other of us in this meeting. 
more proof the God that God cares for me is a story I always tell on how a loan on my bond was granted after an awfully long wait. The day after I fetched the check, after waiting for months, I got a telephone call that my sister and her son had been shot dead by her African-American husband. Had I received that check a week earlier, I would not have had the funds that enabled my mother, my younger brother, and I go to the U.S., have my sister and nephew cremated, and bring their ashes home. This is how God works. I am sure there was an expression of satisfaction on Kosana and Visa's face when he buried their ashes in our father's grave. The God of my understanding has ensured that I have a wife, Ruby, who supports me on this 12th journey. My wife and I know that, know and trust that our God will ultimately assist three of our children lick their problems with alcohol. I've handed over to God. Just as he could sober me up, I'm sure he'll sober up my children. In closing, let me recall two experiences flowing from Forte. In the early hours of my sobriety, I attended our annual convention, which was in East London that particular year. I bumped into a former female student from Forte. As we exchanged greetings in excitement, she told me her husband was in AA and she was with Alanon. I told her of my sobriety because of AA and she gaped in wonderment. The way she later spoke told me that she now believed that our program would work. I could imagine her thinking, if AA could sober this tummy, my husband will certainly sober up. On yet another occasion, I, former, I met a former photo student. He was excited and suggested that we have a drink for old time's sake. When I told him that I do not drink, his, nearly, his glasses nearly fell off his face as his eyes popped out. <laughs> he shook me by the shoulder and said, when? meaning you. His belief, his disbelief is proof that how this program works. If it can sober that avowed for Ted drunk, we simply need this daily brief, but we must work on it. In my first Thanksgiving, my aunt said, said thank you to AA for, for giving us back our child. These words of gratitude coming from a family that I had deeply hurt are the miracle that AA is capable of. I know that for as long as I keep on this daily reprieve, when I continue to be part of you and you are part of me, the joy and gratitude of living, of living will be everlasting. Thank you all, one and all, and God bless friends in recovery. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.